welcome back to the Diaries of the Wild Ones. Once again, a huge thank you to Wild Earth Australia for supporting me and the adventurous lifestyle. If you need anything for your next adventure, running, camping, hiking, climbing, you name it, these guys have it. 10% discount code, Diaries of the Wild Ones, all one word, capital letters. Also, a huge thank you to Free Brewing Co., organic preservative-free beer. Find them at Dan Murphy's or BWS. Exciting news, guys. I have prizes to give away. I've teamed up with Wild Earth Australia to get some engraved opinal knives. Diaries of the Wild Ones and Wild Earth Australia. These knives are amazing. I take them on every adventure and I actually use them in my everyday to day life. So this is actually a bit of a marketing strategy for me because I am terrible at doing anything on the computer. I can't be bothered marketing. I don't want to do this social media crap. So what, what I want to do is give you guys prizes for doing it for me. All you have to do is either subscribe Rate it. Rating's actually the biggest one, I think. Subscribing and rating on Apple Podcasts, giving you a star rating, leaving a, a review, or sharing it on your social media, or just telling your mum. And every week, I just want to pick someone and just send them a prize. So that way, you guys get something. The Diaries of the Wild Ones gets out to more people, and it's just a win-win. And I'd love to do that and be able to share that with you guys rather than just like pay for marketing. I think it's just so much more fun. So I've got shirts, t-shirts to give away, and I've got opinal knives. So every week, guys, feel free to share it for me. Thanks so much. So this this is really hard to fathom. And I've thought about Alyssa's story a lot since I sat down with her. So much goes through my mind and it's so hard to relate to. The whole story behind the human endeavor and what we as humans are capable of. The main question most people would would ask is why risk so much for an experience? Some people are just born that way to go deeper, to go further. Or maybe we all are. I don't don't know. Like I, I know I am. But Alyssa's experience, she is in the adventure world, but she is a normal girl. She's a lovely, normal girl. But she talks about it from the calculated adventurer's mind. So I really want to set this up for you, the listener, to really understand. When I mention Everest in the adventure world, the response is usually the same. It's suicide. And I think... It's something, I think it's something like one out of six people die summiting Everest. So the odds are not great if you even make it that far. This is one of the biggest endurance and mind challenges that a human being can do on this earth. Alyssa says something at the end of this recording about Everest, about Everest letting her live. Because that's the thing. Nature is so wild up there, it can take you at any second. And not just that, but one slight human error, one slight move wrong, the tiniest mistake, it's instant death. This young girl, Australia's youngest to conquer Everest, is about to break down her life story and her whole expedition on Everest. It's a long podcast, but it needs to be. But the last hour, oh my God, it just gets so intense. Alyssa just really opens up. And I think it's one of the wildest stories I've heard. So thank you, Alyssa, for your time. And you, the listener, sit back and take this one in. This story just builds and builds. Enjoy. All right, you comfortable, Alyssa? 
All good. Fuck, do you actually... I heard about you maybe a solid year ago. Okay. Like you came on my radar. Actually, I got told about you. Everyone told me. A few people in the adventure world are like, they're like, do you you know Alyssa? And I was like, I don't know Alyssa. And they're like, the girl, the Everest girl, the girl who climbed Everest. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, and then I started looking you up. And when I first messaged you, Mm. like I was waiting for the right time because I knew I wasn't going to be around Brisbane. I knew I didn't have the time and I wanted to make sure I had the time. Well, I guess it was actually good timing with everything that we're just both sort of stuck in one place. Like, So... Alyssa Azar? Yes. Is that how you say the last yeah, name? Azar, yep. And you have a book. Yes. The Girl Who it's Climbed Everest. Called the Girl Who Climbed Everest, yep. So that was written by Sue Williams. So she does a lot of like Australian books. Um, yes, yeah, so I worked with her on that and she wrote it. So did how does that work? Like when someone writes a book for you, like are you... Yeah, it's a bit different. So they're kind of telling your story. So it's not even like a ghost writer. So it wasn't... Um, so there's some bits where I would write it. Um, but then she'd sort of put other bits in there and um, like it's got conversations with other mountaineers because um, she we got onto her and started writing that well before. So it was kind of a risk because we didn't know how Everest was going to pan out. Um, so she kind of followed the process along, but you just do a lot of interviews and then they get it all down. So before and after a trip and I'd sort of recount what happened on a trip and would always return to her and we'd go through it. So yeah, it was sort of happening in real time as we were going along with that. The girl who climbed Everest. Mm. Did you know, like when, okay, when you went to climb Everest, Mm. did you, were you aiming, was it your goal to be the youngest Australian to climb Everest? Not really. I actually didn't know that when I set the goal, but I did know it when I was on the mountain. But it was actually something I tried to sort of push out of my mind because I knew if you think too hard about the end thing, um, it takes your focus off what you're doing. So it was kind of there, but it wasn't really like a driving motivator. Do you mean, do you mean as in because like of how dangerous it could get by like more like the ego, like trying to do a feat rather than looking after number one? Yeah, I think that the ego of it, you've got to be careful. There's got yeah. to be a balance. Like it's, I think it helps obviously to have that ambition. But yeah, I just knew, particularly with a couple of the seasons that I had and the dangers of it, I just knew like a lot has to come together for this to work. So even like right up until I didn't know if it was going to come off or not, like it really for the final few hours, did I know I was going to get it? So mm. I didn't even think about the record until I was on the way down. Yeah. So, oh God. Okay, we'll we'll get into that. We'll yeah, get, get yeah. into that. So you're 23 now. Yes. Yeah. So this is going live when you're 23, but you grew up in an adventurous family. Sort of. Um, my dad was a bit into it, but not the rest of my family. But you grew up in Toowoomba, like I Queensland. Did. Yeah. Okay. This is okay. The, my the thing that I'm so interested about you mm-hmm. is like how does like. I suppose Toowoomba isn't really country. It kind of is country. Kind of is, yes. So a country Queensland girl mm-hmm. end up being the youngest Australian to climb Everest. But how you, okay, how you became that that girl. Yes, but also then gap. why, like yeah. why? So how did you grow up? Like because from what I saw, it's like your dad was a big influence. Yeah, he was. Um, yeah, that was sort of my introduction to adventure because he was in the army. Um, Both my parents were, and I remember quite young, um, I was into a lot of different sports right at the start of my school years, Um, and then he, 
while he was in the army, before he'd even got out, he started working for a trekking company. So all ex-soldiers and they were running trips across the Kokoda track. Um, so I'd heard a lot about the Kokoda track, um, 96 kilometers through the jungles of Papua New Guinea. And I was just fascinated by it. So most of my weekends, he would go and take, you know, clients. He would take clients across Kokoda from, you know, school age groups right through to corporate. So I saw a whole heap of different people do it. And then most of my weekends, I'd join them on their training hikes locally around Toowoomba. Um, yeah. So that's literally my starting point. Yeah, did, did, did that make you think with such a huge feat like the Kokoda Trail mm. that seeing the people doing it and your dad like training them to do it was that like an inspiration knowing, like seeing that the people are like, well, if they can do it, I can do it? hundred percent. I think for me, it wasn't, I knew it was tough, but it wasn't this far off thing. It wasn't this big, scary unknown as much as it may have been for other people. Because at the time, Kokoda wasn't as commercial as it now is. It wasn't particularly well-traveled. Only a few people had really done it. And so a lot of people had this perception like tribes, you know, in the jungles of Papua New Guinea and it's not safe and and all that sort of thing. But yeah, I'd been around everyday people who had done it. I'd watched them train for it. So I knew, well, if I dedicate myself to the same process, why not? And what... What's so hard about the Kokoda Trail? Is it literally just, just its length? steepness um, and its length? So it's steeper than anything we've got in Australia. It's just, you know, hours at a time of up or hours at a time of down, and that sort of wears on you. So it's really endurance. That's what, you know, hiking up to eight hours a day um, on really, really steep terrain. And how heavy would your pack be? Not super heavy, and it just depends because you can get, you know, a porter, half porter, or you can carry all your own gear. It's pretty much up to the person. Um, being as young as I was at the time, I just had like a camelback, I had water. So typically, you'll just carry a day pack of what you need each day, and then tents and that get set up and all of that sort of thing. So, so what do you mean, like a porter, as in like they're going ahead? So local workers, yep. So it totally depends on the company you're with as to what the services are like, but yeah, typically. Um, you'll have the local workers and they'll go and set up tents and cooking facilities and all that sort of stuff. And so typically you've just got to have your day pack with snacks, water, you know, whatever you might need throughout the day, throughout that eight hours of trekking. And then you get there at the end of the night. I was just, I was just wondering like 96 kilometers of yeah. up and down is, is so hard no matter what you do. And then I was just thinking the difference between carrying a full pack, let's say 15 kilos. Yeah, you feel it. Yeah, compared to having it taken ahead. there's like, That's actually two different challenges. It completely is. Completely different challenges. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, tough no matter what, but yeah, you feel it a lot more when you're carrying your full pack. So. Yeah, like going uphill, like on the calves on that lower back, when you yep. ca- like you're doing that for hours on end. Yeah. That is extreme. That pulling down of your shoulders. That, yeah. Wow, there's so much training. Okay, so so that did that spark in you watching your dad do that? Did that spark, spark the adventurous spirit? Or do you reckon you're born with that? Like, I you... think partially born with it. I think it was already there. And with him, it was sort of like, oh, here's someone who's willing to give me that opportunity to sort of do something with it. Um, because I was very hyperactive, loved a lot of different sports. And then there was something about that in particular. I'd go on these weekend pack walks and just, yeah, I think that adventurous thing was just there. And then, you know, having someone related to me doing this thing called the Kokoda track, I was just fascinated by it and knew I wanted to go and do it. So it was partially instinct. And then what he did was really put the process in place of what I needed to do. How Um, old were you? So I was eight when I first crossed it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, an eight-year-old probably couldn't carry 
No. At 15. No, when you Mate, bod- body weight your relative. Own yeah. Your own turn. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Oh my God. So you're eight years old. Yeah. So I started training for it when I was seven because he said to me, you know, being army, he was very, you know, disciplined and said, you know, okay, but because of your age, you're going to have to prove that you can stick to this. And he honestly didn't think I would. He thought, you know, you're seven, you're going to get bored after a week. But I was just that interested in it. And I knew I wanted to do it. And so he said to me, all right, I'm going to set you a training program over the course of the next year. If you miss a session or you're not working hard enough, then you won't go. And he sort of thought, well, you're not going to finish that. And, And I did. So after a year of training, that was like three gym sessions a week and then a pack walk every weekend to build up the endurance for it. And yeah. then August of 2005, we went over and crossed w- the track. Was it training enough? It was, yeah. So typically people will do sort of 12 weeks before they go. And if you're like relatively fit, that's enough to get you at least conditioned enough for Kokoda. But yeah, that obviously being that young having no base of any kind yeah yeah so so the year was was enough for me what was it like as a girl at school get mm. coming back to school and being like oh yeah no i just crossed the kokoda trail like did other kids understand like not did... really um and it's funny because there was a bit of local media around it at the time just in where i lived and so people were sort of fascinated by it but didn't really get it and so for me it was sort of like these two different worlds I had my very normal school and home life and lived in the suburbs and the rest of my family were very normal and then you know I sort of had this adventurous side where I got to go and do these things on the weekend and and then go and you know cross Kokoda but yeah definitely made it challenging to sort of figure out what normal was for me when you've had those sort of experiences at that age yeah it definitely changes you. You know what I find so cool about the lesson like this? It was funny. I was talking to someone the other day and they were, they were a curious person with a couple of dreams, but they just felt like it wasn't them. As in, they're like, oh no, that, that's what they do. That yeah. person climbs the mountain and it's not me. And I was like, yeah, but that person was you before they had that idea. And then that's right. and you just literally just said, so like, you're curious? Yeah. You're curious? And then everything, any goal takes hard work. Yes. So you're yeah. curious and then you like literally put the steps in place to get to that goal and it was always the same sort of blueprint or process it just got harder as the expeditions got bigger but the process was always the same was you know looking at setting the goal well in advance and then working back from it and what do you need to do what skills do you need what training do you need to do but you know I I knew how to make that work from Kokoda that sort of gave me this idea of how to take on these really big challenges but yeah it just started with an interest um yeah and that was when you were eight years old so then Mm. what developed after that did that give you you know okay completing that first challenge especially as an eight-year-old as an eight-year-old did you feel like so much self-accomplishment huge yeah huge particularly like from the time of setting that goal and then completing that year of training I remember walking through the arches at the end of Kokoda when you get to Owa's Corner and it was just the most surreal moment because I also had a lot of people sort of laugh at me and go there's no way an eight-year-old girl is going to cross the track and yeah I did so you know for me that was just a huge moment and I definitely think it it sort of changed me and my perception of me and yeah set me on a bit of a different path so because then from that you're like well if you can do that you can kind of do anything like that just even Okay, as an eight-year-old girl, then doing that something mm-hmm. like that. God, your dad is a genius. Well, yeah, that. well, you know what? And having done that in such formative years, before the world can start to tell you what you're capable of or put yeah. limits on you, you already have proven to yourself 
but I know I can do this. So you've got that reference point and that yeah. context there now. And so even if I went on to do other things, you could always sort of fall back on that. Well, hang on. I was told I wouldn't be able to do that. And I did a year of training as a seven-year-old and I crossed the Kokoda track as an eight-year-old, you know, so it, yeah, you don't, you just don't buy into it as much. It made me want to set my own bar because I realized the bar that other people have from what I'm capable of in my life is far lower than what I can actually do. And that experience sort of showed that to me. And I think you can, you know, it's a good thing, but you can tell kids to believe in themselves, but it's a different thing to actually give them the tools to do it themselves. Um, I think that's just it sort of ingrains it in you a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually showing them. It's like the practical learning side of things. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Did you find like doing such a feat like that, then then your every day to day life when things got hard, you're just like, no, it's actually not that hard. I, you know, yeah. I've been through worse. Exactly. Yeah. When you're that age and you've been through, you know, the heat of the jungle and trekking for eight hours up some of the steepest terrain. Yeah. You come back and everything feels quite easy to manage. Um, and even if times get hard, you do have that thing that you can draw on and go, well, you did that. Um, so you can, you can do this. Yeah. It just gives you that reference point for everything else. So what came next? So a couple of years after I did Kokoda, um, so my dad was still working for this trekking company. At the time, they only ran Kokoda trips because that was quite popular with Australians, um, having our military history on that track as well. But then they looked at expanding adventures. Um, And I remember initially saying to my dad, I'd love to do Kilimanjaro. I'd research it. And even if that's years from now, I was like, I really there was something about Kilimanjaro and the mountains that really fascinated me and wanted to do that. At the time, um, there was an age limit and I didn't meet it by a few years. It was three, four years, but I sort of had it in the back of my mind and I thought, okay, well, if I can go in a few years, then I'll train up for it. And um, what ended up happening is we ended up going to Everest Base Camp because it's still altitude, but there wasn't an age limit on that. So I was 10 when I trekked to Everest Base Camp for the first time. And got to see Kathmandu and Nepal and, and Everest. Whose idea was that? Is that because your dad was... No, going... so it was sort of a joint thing. Like I wanted to take on another trek somewhere. Um, and I, I initially said Kilimanjaro and he said, well, maybe if there's something else you want to look at because you can't do that right now. Um, and I did my research and I went, there's this Everest base camp trek in Nepal and sort of floated the idea with him. And then what he did was went to the company and said what if we do this as like a reconnaissance trip, work out how we would run it for clients who have done Kokoda and maybe want to do something different. So it was kind of a personal goal, but also expanding the business as we go along. Yeah. And so we went and did that in uh, 2009, I think. That, oh no, 2007, went and trekked to Everest Base Camp in Nepal. So what did that what did that entail? What, is, what does it entail trekking to Everest Base Camp? So you fly into Kathmandu in Nepal, and then you fly into a smaller village called Lukla, and that's at the foothills of the Himalayan mountains, but you're already higher than any point in Australia. You're at just over 3,000 metres above um, sea level in altitude. You then spend, it's about a 21-day trek all up, 14 days to get up to the base camp and a few days to get back down. And what are you trekking through? So you're trekking through like Sherpa villages. Um, So you actually stay in these tea houses and lodges run by Sherpa families and communities. And then along the way, it's just, yeah, different sort of trails, pretty wide open. And as you start to get higher up, you're in these like big mountain areas. Um, And then toward the end of it, obviously, you're in Everest base camp surrounded by Everest and a few of the other 8,000 meter peaks. So Lotsi and a few of the other ones as well. Yeah. On the way up to the base camp, like are you needing to like cramp on in like spikes on your feet? or Not like quite at that like point. That? It's more of a, 
it's it's like a trail. You're still yeah. hiking up trail. But yeah, there's sort of some sections that are more exposed. But no, you don't really climb until you get past base camp. You're only really in the snow sort of area once you actually get to base camp. Oh, God. <laughs> 10-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. If someone wants to climb to Everest base camp, yeah, can, can anyone do it? I think so, but like, you do see people make a lot of mistakes. The biggest concern with it is the altitude. Um, and I think people who haven't been in altitude underestimate that. Um, you can already feel it up at that height. And I actually guided a trek to base camp in 2018. So toward the end of the year, we had a group of 10 Australians. I was guiding that trip. And yeah, you can just tell people really start to feel the headaches the last yeah. couple of days. It's just dealing with the day-to-day discomfort that can add up as well. But it's also, it's one of my favorite places in the world, um, that trip. It's just so amazing. But Why? Oh, for me, I it, definitely the Sherpa culture. I always found really interesting. They're just such lovely people. Um, but the freedom of that particular route, um, and I think having gone there when I was ten, there's there's just this culture of the world's highest mountains, and that always fascinated me. So I enjoyed being up there. I prefer it over any trek or climb I've done anywhere. Does it make you feel small? Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to describe it. Particularly really after the first couple of days um yeah once you really start to get up into the himalayan mountains it's it's pretty indescribable um unless you've been there is it cold it is cold oh not so much during the days like it gets quite warm but yeah as you start to approach toward the end it does get a bit cold so you're a 10 year old girl (laughs) yeah 10 year old girl yeah climb to oh my i want to meet your dad <laughs> no I, I think i'm going to be a parent like this it's just like it's it's breeding capable humans yes yeah you know what i mean yeah like okay okay so 10 years old you go to everest base camp mm-hmm. what came what came next so after that we did one closer to home wasn't super adventure focused you know i was starting high school not too long after that but we did do when i was 12 we went and did the aussie 10 so the 10 highest peaks in australia which you can do over a couple of days um it's quite a long hike but just sort of back country off the beaten trail around kosciuszko national park but my biggest challenge came at the time a couple of years after that i was 14 and finally got to go to Mount Kilimanjaro. It's the one I wanted to do years earlier. So in 2011, after another year of training and doing that whole process, went to Kilimanjaro. And at the time, it was the toughest thing I'd done because it's higher than the altitude of Everest Base Camp. And also, it's a lot less gradual. So Everest Base Camp, there's sort of these winding trails and you still feel the altitude, but you've got more time to acclimatize. Kilimanjaro, much more people get sick on that one. Um, you can ascend too quickly, but you're pretty much just going straight up. So when it, okay, for altitude sickness, it's it's lack of oxygen and lack of oxygen going to your brain. And so as you're, you're hiking, it's like you're moving your body, your body's trying to, the blood flow, you're trying to get the oxygen into the blood. Yeah. So you get less, less oxygen to your brain. That's this- right. Yeah. So it's, it's a combination of things. It's also just the air pressure on your brain. Um, so I remember on summit night on Kilimanjaro, like, the back of my head was just throbbing. Like it just felt, you could feel this pounding. Um, Mm. It's the worst headache I've ever had. And yeah, so it's, it's the pressure, but yeah, it's also just that your body can't get enough oxygen. So it's having to work really hard to try and function. How high is that in meters? Kilimanjaro is, it's just under 5,900 meters. Okay. Yeah. Cause the highest I went was in Bolivia and I think it was Mm. 5,750 meters. 
Yeah. But I got altitude sickness. Yeah. I was in bed for like a but day. See, yeah, or you two, do mate. get you do get it at those heights. People get it um if they ascend too quickly to Everest Base Camp, you see it a lot. People have to get flown out or brought down on a horse or a yak. Um, so you've got to be really careful. It is fitness based. If you've put the work in to be fit, you can usually handle that environment better. But it sometimes it is just random too. Some people really don't handle it and they'll get quite sick fairly low down. And I suppose back then when you were training mm. Did, did they have altitude rooms back then? You know, like the EMF they on the Gold Coast? They had just or... developed the first ever one, like, and it had come to Brisbane. So that was a part of my weekly training when I was preparing for Everest Space Camp. I would, um, yeah, come to Brisbane because my dad sort of worked between Toowoomba and Brisbane. So I grew up in Toowoomba, but once a week we'd come down and I'd do a bit of a session in the altitude chamber, yeah, to, to try and prepare for it. But, you know, back then there was a lot less knowledge on how to prepare for those sort of environments. It is a bit of a toss up as to whether you're going to be able to handle it or not. So that was always a risk. Yeah. What was it in you as a kid that wanted to kick these goals? Oh, look, it was always there. I was always, I don't know what it was, but I always had a long-term vision of just I it was important to me that I at least tried to fulfill the potential that I had so it was a mix of just being a naturally quite ambitious kid but also you know having a parent in my dad who didn't try to hold that back and if anything went okay but let's put a process around that to make sure that you're as prepared as you can possibly be Um, so it was a combination of those two things do you reckon it took away like you as a normal 14 year old, like, were you still doing normal things like with your friends? No, look, it made it probably too challenging. So there is a double edged sword to it. Um, I think at that point, even if like I was still in school and all that sort of thing, but you know, how do you relate to the people around you who don't know anything other than school and home in Toowoomba pretty much. So it was something that for a very long time, it was like living these two different worlds and I sort of kept them separate I didn't really share much about it, but it was actually after Kilimanjaro when I really started to get into wanting to do these bigger climbs that really, it became a lifestyle and I pretty much had to say goodbye to normal life or fitting in or anything like that and just go for it. Wow. Mm. So why was Kilimanjaro so, so hard when you said it was like your biggest feat? That's as a Mm. 14 year old girl. Because I hadn't been to that altitude before and it is a really quick ascent, um, So yeah, you're really like, I was quite fit for it, but you just don't know if your body's going to handle it. But I was fortunate that even though I had quite a headache and you just feel the exhaustion of trying to move in that environment, it's a lot different to just trekking a trail. Um, Just the impacts that that has on your body, it just slows you down. It makes you more fatigued. Everything becomes harder. So that was a good introduction to just how difficult the day-to-day of mountain life is as well. It sort of gave me that exposure. How do you train? Mm. This is what tripped me out in Iceland when I was getting into the mountains. It was like just understanding them because we didn't grow up with it. I grew up on the beach. Yes, yeah. Like the, like the ice, like the avalanches, like mm. the snowpack, you know, like just it's just complete different terrain. Mm. And like for me, it scared me so much because I just didn't understand it. Crevasses. Yeah. Fuck that! I'm I'm terrified of crevasses, and at one stage I fell through the ice into mm. to my waist. Yep. And like it was like it's the most scariest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. But it was just like, how do you train for that? Like, how do you, being, especially being a 14 year old girl, like how do you train for that and going over and being in such a dangerous environment? Truthfully, I don't think you really can prepare for the environment itself. Um, you can have some exposure to it. So where I could, I would go on trips. Like I had a. After I did Kilimanjaro, I went 
and I knew I wanted to get into these bigger expeditions. I went to New Zealand and um, yeah, that was quite nerve wracking because it was all these technical aspects to mountaineering that I'd never done before. I'd done a lot of trekking and I was used to the long hours and wearing a pack, but not all of the technical skills and not looking out for crevasses and avalanche rescue. So really threw myself in head first of like trying to learn those skills. So it is a bit of exposure where you can to those environments, but ultimately what you're trying to train is your mindset, your ability to adapt over there because you can't actually foresee literally everything that could happen. The idea was to make myself as prepared as possible for anything that could on the mountain. Do you understand the risk? Did you understand like making the wrong move was your life? I think I did, you know, looking back. It, it's hard to tell. You just never know the reality of it until you're in it. But yeah, I think I did. Maybe not in that early stage. I was just focused on, you know, mm. the mountaineering course and gaining the skills. And these big mountains seemed a, a long way off at that point. I knew I had years of preparation um, to get me to where I wanted to be. But yeah, as that process went along, by the end of sort of a three-year process, I really knew, I felt like I was prepared for anything it could throw at me. I just, when you, when we just said that just then, I just pictured all these like um, protective parents thinking like, oh, how irresponsible of like parents to like mm-hmm. let your daughter go into such like dangerous, dangerous environments. But I know... And, and it's, it's funny because I just know so many amazing families around the world that have bred such capable kids. Yeah. And it's all because, and I'm not a parent, so I don't really know, but it's all mm. because they've allowed them, like given them the tools that they need to survive, but not, is it baby? What's the word? Like not hindered them to do it. Like allow them knowing like shit's going to happen, knowing they, they're going to have to adapt and like problem solve it. Like, what do you reckon? Was that your dad's natural approach? It definitely you? was. So One thing he's always said, which I think was really good, is he said, I didn't push her down this path, but I didn't pave the way for her either. He never once tried to remove an obstacle, whether it was Kokoda, you know, Kilimanjaro, all the way through to Everest. Never once did he try to shortcut the process because he understood you'd be taking something from me. That's it's pointless if I'm not going to go through the whole thing. So he really held me right from Kokoda to the standard of any other trekker. Like, and he said that to me, he said, I don't care that you're an eight year old girl. You've chosen to do this. This is the requirements of it. That's the standard. So I'm going to hold you to the same standard of someone who's 30 or 40 crossing the track. So what advice then would you give to parents? Like if if you had advice, like I know you're you're not a mother or anything, but just from your own experiences as you growing into yourself as a human, Mm. the way that you had, because it's like sometimes, and this kind of sounds judgmental if I say it this way, but sometimes I'm just like looking at parents like really babying their kids, especially like climbing trees and stuff or or just whatever. And I just like think, just just let them. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think it's such a fine line. And I do think you've got to let them be who they are. Um, I think that's really important. And then, yeah, sort of try and give them the tools. I think mm. it is it is so tempting for parents to sort of jump in there and save them. And I think in the long run, that's more detrimental in a lot of ways. And I'm not saying your kids should climb Everest, but, you know, I've seen it even on Kokoda where I've been a staff member and there'll be sort of parents coming with their kids and, and sort of saying, you know, I want them to gain independence and I want them to have this experience to sort of show them what they're capable of. And you know, it's, it's funny. It's oftentimes the parent can't let go or can't not get in the way. And so it's this process of us going, look, they're actually doing all right. Like, and it's interesting because each side sort of sees how capable the other is. Yeah. So yeah, I think, uh, just, just let them be who they are and, and just be willing to sort of help them put those tools in place and give them the support that you can. 
It's funny, uh, a lady that follows the podcast, her son is about to go to Europe, I think on a mm. studying visa. I don't know, but she messaged me because she was really nervous about him going right now, wondering if I could give him advice and like, yeah. or talk him out of going. And I was like, oh, I don't. I think I'm the wrong person to give advice because I was saying like in the times right now as a 19-year-old kid going to Europe with everything that's happening on in the world, like it's going to make him so capable because he's got to go figure it out. And I was like, so for me, my advice would be throw him in there, like let him figure it out and let him do it. And then I said like I fully understand as her as a mother and then she said to me, she goes, and this is brilliant I think, she she said to me, she goes, you know what? I think he's like this and wants to do that because I have given him the tools to be able to figure it out and do this. And um, so she's like, I know he'll be right, but I'm just still like scared kind of thing. You yeah. know, like, like, and I think it was just the conversation. She just needed to talk about it. But I found that so interesting. She was like, well, no, my son right now is like this and he wants to go send it and do some cool shit over in Europe and like figure it, figure life out for himself because she's given him the tools and like, show, you know, like, made him believe in himself that he's capable to do that yeah i think that's the best thing you can do you know i think that's yeah just backing them giving them yeah those tools so that they can then go and use it themselves i think that's the best thing you can do as opposed to sort of trying to block them from experiences that are going to help them learn and yeah no doubt it's tempting when you want to protect someone um but yeah i think it's important not to hey when you were a 14 year old girl Mm. climbing mount kilimanjaro Mm -hmm. was there any other kids no. So all, so we had, it's probably about a group of eight of us. Um, but no, so we had a woman who was originally from Australia, but she was working over in London. Um, but no, I think everyone was like, oh, minimum 35 and above. So then me, 14 year old. And that became pretty standard because the expeditions kept getting bigger. So naturally there weren't a lot of people my age um, on there. What was it like when you made it to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro? I couldn't believe it that moment. And the last hour was really tough. It was such a grind and it was sort of that typical altitude, 10 steps, need to take a breather, right? push forward. Like you're really just focusing on what's in front of you. But yeah, I remember getting up to the sign at the top of Kilimanjaro and that was a huge accomplishment for me. And particularly because it's something I knew I wanted to do even before I was, you know, nine. Do you have oxygen on you? Not not at that altitude. Not for no, Mount Kilimanjaro. No, so you don't use it on Kilimanjaro. Only only when you really do an 8,000 metre peak, highest mountains in the world, will you start to use it. So Kilimanjaro is 5,900? Yes. Yeah. And Everest is how high? 16,000? No. No, so 8,848. Eight, 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 so 8,848 eight, eight, eight. metres. Um, so it's 29,000 feet. 29,000 feet. Feet. So Kilimanjaro is not even camp one on Everest. There's four camps oh. and then a summit. And so that was the really good thing though. I knew after Kilimanjaro, I'd always had this idea of Everest in the back of my mind, but I sort of thought, you know, it was a far away dream that I wanted to do someday and uh, sort of floated the idea to my dad and said, look, I'd really like to do this and I'm going to start putting a plan in place as I'd done with all my trips. But yeah, I really had no idea. Is that going to take 10 years? Is that going to take 15 years? I didn't know. But yeah, I just knew I wanted to do it someday. But that gave me a really good context of like, hang on, if this is how hard Kilimanjaro is and it's not even Camp 1 of Everest, like this is another level. Yeah, it's like I haven't even experienced true pain yet. No, no, you're well and truly below that threshold. And um, yeah, it definitely makes you nervous because you go, I had headaches. And But it's interesting how your body does adapt because yeah, I, I really adapted to the altitude quite quick over the years. When you, when you said before, 10 steps at a time mm. for people that 
you know, not many people have ex- even experienced high altitude. So you're, it's, it's like you're, you're not getting the oxygen. So you're saying like to do 10 steps, it's, that's like kind of like hiking mm. a K, hey? Maximum exertion. Like, yeah, yeah you're, you feel like your heart's about to pop out of your chest. Like when you're on one of these big mountains, you've got a lot of heavy gear and you've typically been going for a while. Um, yeah, it's, it's 10 steps and I have to take a breather and try and take a couple of deep breaths and then push on for another 10 steps. But it's literally, it takes everything you've got to do that. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so after Kilimanjaro, yep. I'm just kind of slowly building up to the, <laughs> yep. the, the feet. Yeah. Um, so after Kilimanjaro sort of laid out, yeah, what the process would be. And I knew this is going to be a very steep learning curve. So um, was that where the, so you said it before, but that's, that's where That's like, where I actually locked onto it. And that, I was like, this is what I'm going to do when I got home from Kilimanjaro. Yeah. Because I'd had this dream of Everest in the back of my mind. I always knew I wanted to climb it from six or seven years old. That's when I went, I'm going to do it. (laughs) So started researching everything on the training and how the expeditions work and just sort of trying to get a foot in that world, I guess. Um, But it takes years to build up that sort of experience. Yeah, but you had your foot in that world. I did, but it felt like a massive leap to go from trekking to mountaineering because you know, my father was in that trekking space and as a guide, but had never done sort of high altitude expeditions, hadn't climbed on Everest. And I actually, it was hard to find people who had uh, done it at that level. Um, so the, the good introduction obviously was the mountaineering course that I did in New Zealand. So that gave me exposure to, you know, your mountaineering boots and your crampons and all your more technical gear that I hadn't used before. Who was that with? That was with, Do you, if you're... yeah, it was New Zealand Alpine Guides yeah. and it was one of the pretty classic courses that a lot of mountaineers get their start in, it was TMC, so the technical mountaineering course. Yeah. But they've got expedition-specific courses as well and all sorts of different things. So, yeah, we did sort of over the course of 10 days all these different skill sets and then climbed Mount Aspiring over in New Zealand at the end of it as like a finish to the course to like use the skills you've trained. Sick. Yeah. Jeff Wilson does once a year, I think with Fifth Element Expeditions, his company, Jeff Wilson, the, the Polar Explorer world record holder, and they go over, I think it's normally September, October. Yeah. From memory. And they, yeah, they do the, the mountain ear, ear training. And yeah. I really, really want to do it. Yeah, I reckon it's, um, I've had a few friends who aren't, aren't even like super into it, but just wanted to give it a go and try some mountaineering skills and have just loved it. So yeah, it's good fun. Is it hard? It is hard. Yeah. Because for me, like, again, it, it felt even physically like quite a big jump just to get used to sort of wearing the gear and, and all of that. So it's you feel out of your depth at first, but they're so good with like coaching you on that. So some parts of it are harder and then, you know, you get used to it. And then some of the days are actually quite fun as well. Mm. So you get a whole mix of experience. All right. So, so mm. you've, done, you've done your training. Yes. You've done um, your training. But after, you know, Kilimanjaro, it was really a three year process before I first went to Everest. So over the course of that three years, you know, I got to do some trips, but obviously with expenses and that, didn't have the luxury of sort of going and climbing all these different mountains. I was based in Australia, so I had to sort of work out, right, how am I going to train for Everest, um, you know, from here. So a lot of it's physical training. And how are you going to pay for it? Yeah, so like I said, when I started, I didn't know how long that process was going to take. I was like, look, could be in 10 years, you know, after I've saved up for it or whatever. But given that there was a potential record with how young I was, it started attracting media attention and sponsors. So I could go effectively if I had the sponsorship. 
but it was kind of on the table of if that's going to be there or not. So there's a lot of unknown. You're just training with this sort of, you know what you want, but you don't know what the path to get there is going to look like or how long it's going to take. So you've got to be really dedicated to staying on that path of, you know, training for it, not really knowing what the end result's going to be. Yeah, I was going to say, does it mess with your mind having the expectation when a sponsor comes on? It can, yeah. It definitely complicates it and it does sort of mess with your head and I find that you've got to be good at like compartmentalizing it um, because it's a great opportunity but you also have to make the right decisions as a climber on the mountain in this really unique environment that is hard for sponsors and other people to understand. You know, unless they're in that climbing space um, and you're sponsored by someone who gets it, it can be quite difficult. Um, so I found I had to get really good at sort of, you know, being present with media and sponsorship and all that sort of thing and understanding what they required from me, but then being really mentally tough to go, you know, my training time is non-negotiable and, and being dedicated on the mountain is not negotiable. So it was quite challenging. And what, but just even what about like, okay, you're going to sponsor me mm-hmm. to, you know, possibly be the youngest mm. girl. Was it the youngest girl at the time or youngest Australian? No, youngest Australian. Yep. The youngest Australian to climb Everest. What if you didn't make it? Like, yeah, that was this... a huge risk. And I think people knew that going in as well. Like, you know, you're honest with them and say, look, this is what I'm trying to do. But yeah, there's a lot of sort of luck involved with weather and that sort of thing. But I was pretty confident in my train or training and all that. If, if the weather window did open up that I'd have it, but yeah, that's sort of something you just have to communicate with your sponsors and sort of try and build a good relationship in that regard. Did you um, get a sponsor? I did, yeah. So my main sponsor pretty much all the way through has been Mountain Designs. Um, and that's really lucky because, like I said, they're in that space. So they sort of get that environment. And, that's and it's more of a partnership than, than a sponsorship as well. But that's an Australian gear company. I think they're the only Australian mountaineer They company. are. They're the only ones out of Australia. So they were started in 1975. And I actually remember I used to go down to Brisbane a bit with my dad when I was training for Kokoda and just, like, getting into the whole trekking space and uh, I actually used to see on the walls all of Australia's most elite mountaineers and all the big mountains they climbed in the Himalaya and, you know, got to see Everest. And so I think that sort of also imprinted it in my brain. I was already, like, interested in Everest. But, yeah, seeing that there were actual Australians who were doing this sort of stuff yeah. um, sort of was like, oh, that's interesting. And I think that and then also when I got to go to Nepal for the first time, it sort of I was around that culture a lot. And that's what made it quite interesting to me as well. Did you ever question yourself? Like feel like, okay, especially Mountain Designs coming on Australia's only mountaineer company, mm-hmm. taking you on. You're looking at these guys that you know can pull off these feats. Did, were you ever questioning like, is, can I do this? Is this for me? Am I that person? Yes. Yep. I did. It was a constant back and forth throughout the process. You have really good days where, you know, training is going really well and you feel really strong and you're like, I think I can do this. And then you'd have days where you'd sort of freak out about it. And, you know, you go to bed at night and really think about and run through the risks and go, you know, what if this is a thousand times harder than anything I can possibly imagine? So for me, the answer was just to leave no stone unturned in my preparation and go over there and just give a really honest effort. And I tried to surround myself with people that would be brutally honest who, you know, wanted to see me succeed, but were going to tell me sort of where I was at and what I needed to work on. But yeah, it was a constant sort of thing that you have to overcome. You always have that self-doubt. So how was your training? Like, what did you do? What did you have to do? So it was a lot of physical training at home and that was pretty consistent. So I trained like 
a professional athlete really. Um, so it was very similar in a lot of ways to my training when I was younger, just longer duration, heavier packs, that sort of thing. But it was also some of the training camps that I did that I found really helped me, um, particularly mentally. So one of the first ones I did was with someone who's a good friend of mine now, um, but back then I didn't know him. So my dad got in contact with a guy he sort of knew, um, Keith Fennell. So he was the youngest person to ever make it into the Australian SAS. So he did SAS selection when he was 21. And my dad had read his book and said, you should read this just for that sort of mindset that you're going to need, you know, to be the youngest Australian to climb Everest. And so I read his book and just uh, got a lot out of it. And then I got the opportunity to actually go into a training camp with him. So he was living in New South Wales and he said, yeah, look, if Alyssa wants to climb Everest, we literally didn't know each other. He said, you know, she can come down, spend a few days training. We'll talk through some mindset stuff and I'll also just see where she's at. And I'll tell you whether I think she's got what it takes to do that or not and just give you a really honest assessment. So having those sort of things along the way to really put your training to the test, I found was really important because a large part of climbing Everest beyond the physical is how do you react when you're really pushed to the wall mentally? Are you going to sort of dig deep and push forward or is that going to make you quit? And I think you have to spend some time in that mental zone where it's really tough and you're like, how do I get through this? And mentally finding a way to work through that process. So a large part of it is mental, um, but you sort of achieve that through the physical. You've got to push yourself to a certain point first. Yeah. I call that the growing zone. That's where Absolutely. you learn about yourself. Absolutely. That's the zone. And that's, you encounter that on Everest a lot. And so half of it is like just exposing yourself in little bits to that growth zone. Um, so I did that training camp with him and got a lot out of that. What? What? Okay. In this book, in his book and just mm. with him in general, do you remember like the penny drop moments, like the actual things that stuck with you? Like, do you have like any mantras that stick Not with you really inside? Not really a mantra, but there were a few things in his book. First of all, for someone who had done what he'd done, just the humility he had around it. And for me, just seeing that he had a very similar sort of mindset to me of like, you know, I'm going to go for it despite the fact that other people think I'm too young and that I can't. And that also, if I'm willing to do the work, then why not? Even if it's a steep learning curve for someone my age, um, it just sort of had that same like self-belief that I had. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that like, well, here's the process that I took. Um, and I was always the same. I was like, if I am willing to do the work that any, you know, mountaineer who's a, a much older man, um, than what I am, as a young girl, then, then why not? You know, for me, it was very similar to Kokoda. It was like, we're going to hold you to the same standard as everyone trekking across this track. I expected to be held to the same standard as anyone on Everest. And that's how I trained. Um, so I never took into account that I'm a teenage girl. I didn't focus on that, even if sort of media did. Um, and I worked with people who also didn't focus on that. People like Keith, who were, who just were respectful and were going to give me a real shot, but they said, look, we're not going to pull any punches either. We want to see what you're capable of and, and we'll give you an assessment. So it's it's nerve-wracking too when you walk into stuff like that and you're just really putting yourself out on the line because he could have easily said, no, you're not ready and that could have dragged it out a few more years and, and definitely could make you doubt, doubt yourself even more. Did they push you to your limits? So it was interesting with him. There were sessions that did, but he also said to me, look, I didn't want this to be a selection. I did want to see like physically what you're capable of, but also... It was more lateral than that. It wasn't just like, we're going to smash you. It was, you know, how do you react to fear? Um, we just had a lot of good conversations around, you know, he wanted to see how I reacted to the potential of me dying. 
losing fingers, you know, really tried to sort of hammer home that reality and, and also just gave me some good strategies of like how to cope with the chaos of expeditions and what happens if things go wrong because he'd been in life and death situations. Um, so it was a bit of like that stuff as well as pushing me hard. Those life and death situations. Mm. Did you ever feel like whatever comes at you, you've got this because you've always been able to sort it out before? Yes, Or were, I did. were you actually like... So you didn't have the actual realization like, oh, hang on a second, like at any moment an avalanche could just boom, take me out. I felt like I could handle it um, no matter what, but there's probably a small percentage of doubt. And I think that's actually healthy to have because you do, you just don't know until something happens, how you're actually going to handle it. A lot of people think that they'll become under pressure, but you just don't know until an avalanche does hit or something happens. So I, for me, it was a combination of things. I think I'd had enough experiences at that point where I felt like I could sort of lean on myself and I knew, okay, I've gotten through a lot of the challenges before. So it builds up that confidence that you have, but also the training. I knew how hard I trained and I knew the people I'd worked with and the level that they were at. Um, and you know, they're the type of people who were not going to tell me, yeah, you're ready if I wasn't. Um, so I trusted their opinion. Um, and they said, yeah, look, we think, we think you can do this. So that gave me a lot of confidence as well. Yeah. So was there a point when you're like, I'm ready, let's go. Yeah. I, for me, it came sort of, I would say my final climb before I went to Everest. So I had the opportunity in early 2014 in January to go and climb in the Andes, go and climb the highest mountain over there. Aconcagua. That's the one. That's yep. what I want to climb. Yes. It's one of my favorite places in the world, actually, second to Nepal and the Himalaya. Um, even just the culture over there, I just love that trip. But it's also a really tough mountain. Just the weather conditions can be quite volatile or it'll go from really nice to like blizzards and snowstorms. So it's actually a really good expedition training ground. Um, so I got invited over there on an expedition because... It was going to be the same group that I was climbing with on Everest, um, but it was also kind of a test. So they said, look, we want to see how you perform on a real tough expedition over the course of three weeks at altitude. And if we think that you're strong enough and you perform well, um, particularly because of my age, they said, if we think you perform well, then you can come and join the team for an Everest expedition a couple months later. Were you so just like, bring it on? I was. At this point, I'd trained for years, you know, and I, I'd worked with Keith and he had a lot of confidence in me and just said, look, I think you've got what it takes. And so that was only a few months earlier. So that was sort of toward the end of 2013. And then I sort of had Christmas where I was training as well. And then January into the Andes. And, um, yeah, I was like, bring it on. I just, I felt like I was, I was a lot stronger than where I started after I came off Kilimanjaro. It was like two different people almost. What, what happened when you landed in the, in the Andes? So went over there, started climbing with an international climbing group. So, um, flew into Mendoza and then from there we drive a few hours to the start point of Aconcagua and, uh, hike for three days just to get to the base camp and that alone there's one really tough day where you've got to hike for like 11 hours and it's pretty uphill with your whole pack or you got sherpas um so yeah they actually have mules um that carry your bigger expedition kit to the base camp so any of the stuff you won't use on the trek in will go in there so any of your big boots your crampons ice axes all that sort of thing will go um, with the mules up to base camp and then you'll just carry what you need for the three days trekking into the base camp so yeah we had an international climbing team so we had people from mostly south africa or australia 
and then a couple from other countries as well. Um, and yeah, it was sort of both to get to know the team that I'd potentially be climbing on Everest with, but they wanted to see how I'd perform and if, if I was sort of up to the grade of potentially attempting Everest and spent three weeks climbing over there and we didn't get to make the summit because of really high avalanche risk on summit day. So we were a few hours from the top and uh, some of the really experienced guides were just like, nah, it's way too dangerous. Um, we got hit with a blizzard and a snowstorm after that as well on the summit day, but had such great experience over there for like expedition climbing. And they just said, yeah, we think, we think you've got it and you can come to Everest. So so when you climb, so you get to base camp, mm. what do you set up tents? You do. So you set up tents, um, but there's also some there. So they, there's an expedition company over there that is pretty much based there throughout the climbing season. So they've got a lot of their tents as well. Um, so there's some already set up and sometimes you have to get there and set them up as well. But there's a little base camp and then from there you start climbing on the mountain. Yeah. How long does it take from there generally to summit? So with that mountain, it's high enough that you have to do sort of not quite the level of Everest, but almost mini rotations where you can't just go straight up and climb. You'll have to go from base camp to camp one and then come back down because you have to acclimatize to that sort of altitude. So we spend a few weeks doing that or probably... Are you doing the same route every time or just... You are. Yeah. yeah, you're doing the same route every time. So it, it can sort of mentally wear on you when you're doing that, when you know you've already climbed a certain section. But when you do those rotations, you're also setting up the camps for your summit push, which is, again, something you do on Everest. So it's really good training. So when you do your first hike up from base camp to camp one, you'll then you know set up tents, leave stuff there, and then come back down. And you're kind of doing that up to camp two on that mountain. So you'll do that twice. Once your camps are set up, you come back to base camp rest and then you go for a summit push. Shit. Okay, yeah. wait, wait, wait. Aren't you ever worried like if a blizzard comes in that it's going to knock your camp out? So what we do is we'll go up, we'll set everything up, sort of the base of it, but you collapse the tents. So just the base of the tents are there. And then we've got these barrels. And so there's kind of a system where everything's protected um, behind rocks and different campsites and that sort of thing. So you've just got like the base of your camp there. And so next time you come up and you're actually going to stay there, you can quickly set things up. Um, so you kind of just have the raw materials of what you need when you go up and down. What's the environment like? Like, are, are you while you're climbing? You know, I'm guessing you're stripping down. Like, mm-hmm. you're, you're quite warm. Are you trying to? Are you trying not to sweat? Yes, you are. So that's the thing. It's a cold environment, and particularly on that mountain, the weather changes so quickly that you pretty much yeah sort of have to be able to really quickly transition um, between your layers but yeah once you start climbing it gets really hot and you're pretty much down to just a base layer top and even that you are sweating and because it's a cold and windy environment sometimes though you don't realize how much water you're actually losing through sweat Um, you're working really hard it does get quite hot during the day and so you have to try and take on as much water as you can throughout that process as well are you trying not to sweat so it doesn't freeze on you for hypothermia as well Yeah, you are. So it's really important that when you get to the next camp, if you can, to change your top and then your socks as well, or just like dry them out. Because yeah, if if that, it's it's usually you sort of have to deal with it when you're climbing because you don't have the luxury of changing or anything like that. So it is a risk. But if you sit in it too long and cool down after you've been sweating while you're climbing, that's when you start to potentially be at risk for hypothermia and things like that. How do you dry them? So you usually just have to lay them out in your tent and during the day in your tent, so occasionally you'll have rest days because you're acclimatizing, 
So the heat inside your tent, it's actually quite hot. So yeah, it's pretty easy to dry things out if the weather's good enough, but typically you'll bring an extra pair. But sometimes you just have to deal with, uh, you know, a wet pair, unfortunately. Did you find Aconcagua hard? It was, yeah. But to be honest, with all my training, probably not quite as hard as I thought, but it, it is a really tough mountain. So yeah, it's just the weather conditions, it's long, it's, you know, a lot of people will sort of say, particularly within the Seven Summits chain, that it's, oh, it's a step up from Kilimanjaro, like it's just a slightly bigger version of that. Um, it's a big leap, it is technically the next mountain on the list in terms of height and yeah. difficulty, but for me, it's it's quite a big jump. I think a lot of people underestimate that mountain. Did you feel you killed it? I did, purely because I was training with Everest in mind. I think maybe if I'd gone there... And this was the mountain. Yes, it, it probably would, would have been a lot tougher. But I was going to this mountain with the expectation that I'm going to Everest a few months later. So I need to be able to handle this because this, even the summit of this mountain is Camp 3 on Everest. And there's still another camp above that. And then you've got a summit day. So you understand how much of it is your mind. Yes. I, was, I was wondering about this when, I, when I'm running. Mm. When I'm running, if I have a point, I was wondering... I was, this was the other day. I was like, and we did this hike and I was doing this run up. It was really steep. And I was thinking like, it was starting to get really hard mm. because I could see the top. And I was like, oh, I've just got to get past this bit. Yeah. And the top and the last bit was the hardest. And then I was thinking to myself, I've done other runs and stuff where it's been like triple that length. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's always, and I'm at the same point physically, mentally where I am right now. Yeah. But I, you know, just because I kept, like I'm picturing that end. You know I what I mean? That's part of it, I think managing your perception and your expectation is such a big part of it because I actually, I did get to catch up with one person who had climbed Everest when I was sort of in that first year of preparing for it. And we just sort of sat down and ironed out a plan of like what he would do differently and all that sort of thing. And one piece of advice he gave me said, don't look at or think about the summit when you're on the mountain. All your energy needs to be in what you're doing right now. So like learning that where you put and control your focus is half the battle um, and learning how to manage your mind when you're under pressure, I found was a large part of it um, in being ready for Everest. And Aconcagua is a really, really tough mountain, but I actually didn't find it that tough because I was mentally ready for Mount Everest. So for me, this was nowhere near yeah. as challenging as what I needed to handle. So yeah, I think that perception is is probably why I didn't find it as difficult as well. But did shit ever go wrong and you had to adapt? Like definitely with weather conditions and even just like managing potential disappointment. You may not get a summit like we didn't. Yeah, we got caught out in a pretty bad storm on summit day um, and it got pretty dicey and, you know, you sort of worry, are we going to So what happened? Would you mind just like literally going through that storm? Like if you, okay, has this like you've decided, okay, you can't summit yeah. You know, you realize because the thing is the risk is so high. It's, it's yeah. like that dictates what you do. It's like, well, if you can't, no, because you all potentially kill yourself. So I was like, nah, we're not ready for this. Turn turn around. We can't do it right now. Yep. But yeah. then what what happened with like the buildup of a storm coming in and how do you adapt to that? Do you remember the moment? I do. Look, I think there does have to be a certain amount of acceptance of the environment that you're in um, and sort of knowing when to push and when not. And, you know, I just trusted the advice of the really experienced guides that we had. And they said, way too dangerous for us to go up. So, you know, I always was like, I'm going to make the right decision for where I am. Um, and that was the right decision. So I was okay with that as much as I really wanted a summit to sort of, you know, prove to myself, like I'm ready for Everest. I made the top, but 
with how good I felt only a few hours, like I knew, okay, this is good. Like I'm already, I'm close to 7,000 meters in altitude and I feel really good. I feel really strong. Don't have any headaches. Like I'd adapted really well um, throughout that expedition process. So I felt really good with that. And it also made the guides confident that I could climb Everest. But yeah, you're sort of managing a bit of disappointment um, and then having to stay really focused now because we were in quite a bad storm. Yeah, um, so tell us, tell us the storm. Well, we got into whiteout conditions where you could not see much further in front of you. Could you see it coming? Like, did you know the storm was about to hit? No. So it wasn't, it wasn't a bad day when we started out. It was pretty clear and it rolled through really quickly. So we actually initially stopped because there'd been a lot of snowfall overnight. So even though it was clear when we started climbing, there was just a lot of snowfall and there was really high avalanche risk. So if we all started climbing up this section, it was probably going to avalanche. And there were a lot of people trying to summit that day. So that just increased the risk tenfold. So we knew it was the right decision to go down, but then literally not long after that, out of nowhere, we got hit with this storm. But this was just the best particular day to go. Like they thought the weather was going to be good. But yeah, so we kind of got hit with it on the way down. Luckily, there were ropes already set up. So we were able to sort of find our way down through that. But yeah, we were in pretty deep snow as well and it was getting a lot heavier. So I was sort of worried about, you know, how we were going to get down. Um, but luckily we were able to. So you're wearing harnesses and you're just clipping into these ropes. That's right. Yeah. So you're clipping into the ropes, um, got a harness on with your safety line and everything. Um, so that kind of guided us back to the camp three. And then we have to, you know, pull down camps and, and go down to camp two. So we had a pretty long day that day. Is that still in the storm? Still in the storm. Yeah. With so it didn't wind. really stop until we got down to base camp. We're pretty close. But what's that like? Cause I, like I've been in Iceland in, in storms that I remember one time I was on this mountain and this storm hit and there was so much going on and there was so, oh, I had to lay down just so I could think. Yeah. I think just, you've just got to narrow your world to what's right in front of you. That's that's how I sort of dealt with it. Literally focusing on the steps in front of you, um, because like it, one step at a time. Exactly. Yeah. Were you getting scared? A little bit because it it wasn't stopping. The snow was getting heavier and deeper, and you know the whiteout conditions were getting worse. And I was also sort of worried about some of the team members. Some had had to go back to the camp three and wait for the rest of us. A couple of them had altitude sickness. One started getting early onset of frostbite just with how cold it was um, climbing, you know, sort of in the night. You start at midnight usually or pretty early hours of the morning. Yeah, and it's pretty uncomfortable for the first few hours. So, yeah, you sort of think about all those things. I was thinking about, you know, sort of where our team members were, but then, yeah, you really have to narrow your focus to what you're doing right now and just staying focused on making sure you know where the rope is because if you lose that or you lose your teammates, it would be really hard to know where you are and it's not unusual on that mountain for people to get lost or go missing. It's really easy to miss the track back down shit yeah it's funny because like you guys are so calculated because you have to yes be. yeah because any any mishap is life yeah you know fuck have you, have you ever been close to getting frostbite i've had early onset of it before i've been close to getting it actually i did a little bit on that expedition as well so some people had to turn back it was that bad i did have pretty bad like stinging um and really the danger is when it goes numb so it it went numb initially and then i had this really painful stinging which is kind of good because it's the blood trying to get back into your fingers but it was that cold when we started out that yeah i I did have a bit of that experience on that expedition and really painful and really uncomfortable and quite concerning so you've got to try and warm yourself up really quickly and 
when you're on a summer day, you just can't stop moving. You've got to keep the blood circulating. Keep... When you when you said before those guys went back to Camp 3, mm. did they get in their sleeping bags, get in their tents yes. to stay warm because yeah. without moving? That's right. Yeah, they had to. So we had camps, a camp down there in tents and yet get back in your sleeping bag and you have to try and warm yourself up again after you've been exposed to that. What yeah. happens with, say, fatigue, all mm. that? Like, say you, you go get in that, they're in that, like, that, that tent in that sleeping bag trying to keep warm and then the blizzard gets that real like have you do you just have to hold on and like just and just pray that like your tent's gonna hold yeah pretty much if it there's there's been times where you'll get winds that heavy that it doesn't seem like the tent's gonna stay up or you know it could be damaged luckily they're pretty high grade expedition tents but this mountain's known to be quite volatile with weather so, yeah, that is a concern. But you um, not get scared? You know, sitting there with that, that tent going, fuck, if this blows off, I'm... Or do you know because you've got A, B and C checked? You have, you your... have rough sort of plans for what you, you know, you start to, at least I did, would start to go, okay, you do have a moment of fear, particularly when it gets quite intense and you go, okay, that's this is starting to get concerning. But then my mind would always switch to, okay, I'm going to do this if this happens. I'm going to do that if that happens. You start to sort of look at, right, how am I going to manage that situation? And it's it's not easy to do under pressure. It's not, I was, I was it's not s- easy to do when you're under mental fatigue and, and all that sort of thing. You do have to be able to sort of compartmentalize. And I found that on big expeditions over the years too. Like, you know, there'll be stuff that, that naturally would affect you emotionally with, you know, deaths and different things, but you have to be so focused in the moment, handle it, and you almost have to sort of deal with that later when you're out of danger. Well, because you've got to get the job done. Yeah, and it's just not a forgiving environment, and, yeah, you've got to be able to put that first, and then otherwise it can create more problems if you don't handle the initial problems well. And that was actually a really good um, analogy that Keith gave me when I did get some mentorship from him. He said, you know, particularly when I said, you know, in these unknown environments, how do you sort of manage that how do you stay on course when it's actually natural for things to go off course and we know that's going to happen and he gave me this analogy of uh, what he calls the perfect performance line and he said you know when I've been in combat situations we have you know if everything was going to go right what would that look like and we know it's not but every time you get thrown off course your decision should be getting you at least one percent closer back to where you want to be and if you can just sort of have that rough direction um, it'll help you make decisions in chaos. Fuck, I was just, you've been bred into such a capable human <laughs> that you can be so practical and calculated mm-hmm. in the middle of a blizzard on one of the highest peaks in the map. Yeah. I had this experience because I've been working on this TV show the last week, you know, dri- driving around people on this TV show. I can't yeah. really say much more. But there was this one guy who wouldn't get out of the car without bug spray and was freaking out and blah, blah. And it, was, yeah. and it was fine. It was just like, I didn't, I wasn't judging him. It was just each to their own. Yeah. Um, you know, a city guy like quite, and, but like freaking out and quite, um, I wouldn't even say fem- feminine, just so not used to that environment. Yeah. And I was just thinking like about like how I'm sure that person would be so much more capable in other things, especially like maybe business or computers. I don't know. But it was just like, for me, it was just like, Grabs and bug spray. I don't know. It was just like, it just wouldn't even matter. Those bugs just deal with, like, you know what I mean? Mm. Just get the job done. And I was yep. like, then when I was driving here this morning, I was like thinking about it, like, about like when things happen, say like a natural disaster and the panic. Yeah. And about the ones that are like the managers. Like, and we have that, it's, 
I was thinking about it in the analogy of the way of like stepping up to the plate mm. and if you take on that responsibility. So if I, let's say I'm working in a company and I don't have to have that much responsibility because I have a manager. So when shit goes wrong, I can kind of check out and be like, whoa, you've got to sort this out. And that manager is like their role. They're like, boom, all right, I need to just figure it out. You know what I mean? Because it's like that is their role. So mentally they're like, oh, okay, my role is manager. This Something's happened. I don't know how to deal, but I've got to. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they work it out and everyone under that kind of can like just like pump. And then I was like thinking about like natural disasters about the ones that just like man up or when something happens and you're like, oh, I've just got to be capable. I just started thinking about like, what if you were just always like that? You didn't need the manager in anything mm. in life. Like you could be that capable one and just be like, oh no, I've got to deal with it. And I think that's something like I've learned over the years from when I was younger. It's just like, it's just, I could just getting the job done. It's just yeah. like shit happens and you're like, fuck, just man up. I've got to do this. But I, I think we all have our points. <laughs> like where you are at is on top of a mountain. Like I don't know what I would be like in that situation, like on Everest. Yeah, I think too, you're right. That's very much my element. So even though there was a lot of training involved, you know, that's an environment that, that I really felt good in. Um, and I do think everyone's particularly good at something. Um, so, you know, you throw me in a, into a completely different environment that's got nothing to do with that. It could be a very different scenario. How is it for you now in every day-to-day life? Mm. The fact that like there is like no one really understands what that environment's like. Like for me surfing up around the Arctic Circle and stuff, mm. I don't know anyone that I know that like – you know, like my friends up there all do it. So that's all fine. It's just all normal. When I'm at home, it's like, oh, I don't know. I can't really explain it sometimes. Yeah. You're like, oh, I, I don't know. It's just like, there's no one else that's. Yeah. Much <laughs> the same for me. I think unless you've done it, it's really hard for you to understand that environment, even sort of the people closest to me who maybe want to understand. Um, that's something that I've always, obviously they're aware of it and it's a big part of who I am, but it is sort of in that world. Um and yeah, for me, I, I just try not to compare my normal life now to sort of my life of what I was doing in the mountains because they are worlds apart for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. So, Ag and Cag was done. It's given you. Mm-hmm. It's given you the. Um, it's given you the know-how. It's shown you that you can do this. Yeah. Is that in, in your mind? You're, once you get off that, were you like, yeah? Yeah, definitely. Particularly because just that feeling of pressure of knowing you are being watched. People are sort of checking if you're capable of this more so than anyone else because of my age. And at the time I was a 17 year old girl. So yeah, I felt this pressure, but I really felt like I stepped up to the plate. I didn't really feel like there was anything I couldn't handle. And I do think that was very much because my mind was on Everest and just a lot of the training I'd gotten to do with Keith. I think the combination of that and the Andes and that really helped me perform. Were you proud Um, of yourself? I was because there was a lot of pressure and you know, it was a big unknown to me. I didn't know what to expect with that mountain. But yeah, I was really happy with how I performed. It gave me a lot of confidence going into Everest. Mm. Can we get into Everest? We can. Okay. <laughs> so I headed home end of January of 2014. I then had, I think it was a couple of months of February and March at home. So I had a final eight weeks of training, build myself up physically. And then off I went early April fly over to Kathmandu in Nepal. Were you excited? I was. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Like it was Everest. It was here. So for me, this was 
literally three years of pretty much being dedicated to this every single day um, and working through a lot of those doubts and throwing myself into these really challenging situations where I really had to step up. And yeah, it was here. So I flew over to Kathmandu and met with the same expedition team I was with in the Andes. Okay, so what happened? What happened? So (sighs) I then did the trek into Everest Base Camp, which is where our expedition begins. So 10 days, uh, sort of 14 days up to base camp. And was it easy? It was at that point. It's funny because, you know, years years earlier when I was 10 and I had my first trip there, it was like, oh, well, this is a huge challenge. And now I was returning as someone who was actually trying to climb the mountain and sort of one of these people that I looked up to. And yeah, I actually found the trek to base camp. It was actually sort of my time to get my head straight and mentally prepare. And it's funny because before I left, there was a lot of, you know, sort of media stuff and sponsorship stuff and I actually found that that in between time trekking to base camp was me time to really get mentally focused for what was about to come. And then, yeah, we live in base camp. The Everest expedition takes two months of living on the mountain. So we set up our little home away from home and you can't really go up and climb straight away because you have to acclimatize for about a week or two sometimes. So so what's the day in the life at Everest Base Camp? Yeah, it's um so when you're climbing obviously it's really intense, but when you're in base camp it's quite relaxed. You actually just need to give your body time to adapt. So it's can actually get quite boring at times, but obviously being where you are, you're like just so amazed at, you know, getting to be in Everest Base Camp that I always really enjoyed it. But you've got a mess tent where you'll come together as a team for all your meals. So breakfast, lunch and dinner. Um, but yeah, you're living sort of near your Sherpas and you've got your own little camp amongst all the other camps and base camp as well. So, so you're, all you're these, in a tent? You're in a tent. So you've got your own single personal tent with just your expedition duffel bag and yourself. And, and, and what are you sleeping on? So you've just got a pretty basic mat. So like these little thermarest type mats that you use for camping and yeah. um, you just got your sleeping bag and, and that's it. Yeah. Wow. How many people would be at the base camp at any one time when you're there? Oh, up to 200. So a lot of people. It, it's a lot, but it's also quite a wide sort of glacier. It runs sort of along where Everest is. So if, um, if you're there for two months, like I'm guessing everyone would be in it at different mental states. I'm guessing there'd be socializing. There'd be that's people right. being serious, like prepping. And there's like people prepping. like, you know, you've got sort of your rough weather windows of when you want to try and plan your summit. But yeah, you've got some people who will be just about to go for their first rotation. So they're really like mentally in the zone. And then, yeah, you've got people who are literally just getting to base camp and, you know, socializing and just getting used to it. So yeah, everyone's kind of on their own sort of thing, um, particularly with all the teams. Yeah. Is there any little parties going on? Oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> so particularly some of the like bigger US sort of commercial companies, they had quite a, an established setup. Yeah. So sometimes you'd hear parties and things like that. <laughs> yep. You're kidding. Yeah egos mm-hmm. you know That's everyone's got this like huge feat they're trying to do it That's was right. their what was their egos yeah definitely and everyone has such a different story and a different motivation so even though you've all got this common goal what drives each person is really different and some people are very egocentric and it's a lot about sort of what might be on the other end of a summit and yeah and then you get climbers who are just you get a lot of introverted climbers who just love it for the process and the sake of the climb so it's this really interesting mix of people even within your own team um, and let alone the wider sort of base camp so everyone obviously has to come together and work together to make it work to climb the mountain but yeah it's interesting all the different sort of attitudes in that 
I just like pictured like that typical scene in a movie where like someone like the ego is like, no, I'm going for it. And then the, the practical mind's like, you can't, you'll kill yourself. The, <laughs> yeah. the storm's coming in. And it's like, no, I want to be that guy kind of. Yeah, there is a bit of that, particularly because usually at the start of every like Everest climbing season, you'll have a head Sherpa of every team and then the team leader and they'll come together and everyone will have a meeting in base camp on behalf of all the teams. And that'll, they'll sort of plan out, okay, we're going to rope this section of the climb. So we don't have all these ropes of every team getting caught up with each other. We all come together and set one for the entire season. So they'll go like, we can set this amount of ropes of this section of the climb and we can do this and we can do that. And so you'll all sort of work together and you typically try and plan different weather windows and summit days but you know people do sort of sneak off even though they've told you a different day or you know oh yeah we're gonna go on this day and then they try and be the first to go up and you do get a bit of that because at the end of the day everyone wants their team to have the best window and and succeed so did you ever get nervous like I I I gotta say that like I I get nervous sometimes around like these big adventures because I'm like oh my I'm just some normal dude kind of thing you do a bit and particularly for me being you know my first time on Everest and you know on the scene like yeah you are sort of put your head down and work hard sort of attitude because you do see a lot of these legendary mountaineers that you've heard about for years just walking through base camp or you know they're guiding a team or something like that so yeah you are a little bit like that Um, and you do get nervous and sort of wonder how am I going to perform and am I going to sort of stack up to being here. So how many people are in your team? So typically, yeah, anywhere from eight to 10 is sort of an average team size. Some are a a lot bigger, but yeah, maximum most teams will be 15 people, but ours had eight. So, So what happened on the first attempt? So on the first attempt, we'd been there for only about a week. And at the start of every climbing season, we don't climb until the Sherpas have set the ropes. Um, and that's kind of a tradition until they've set a certain amount, you don't climb on the mountain. Um, they're the first ones to do it every season. And so we'd been in base camp for about a week, just acclimatizing and sort of starting to plan when we might start to go up. So do they take the ropes down at the end of the season? They do. At the end of every season, they all come down, all the tents, ropes, everything like that. So they get put up at the start of the season and then taken down. I wonder when how many ends. Sherpas have died over the years oh, from, from that. Yeah. Isn't even. That very first section of the climb is the most dangerous, particularly for Sherpas. And I think over the years, a lot of the guides have wanted to minimize the amount of time they spend in there because fixing those ropes in such a dangerous section. Um, is that the crevasse section? It is. It's the Kumbu Icefall. And that's all of those ladders and the ridiculous sort of bridging that you see going on because that's the only way to get through there. These seracs are like big ice chunks the size of buildings and they're just sitting on top of each other and there's a glacier running underneath it so it's not stable at all but you can't get onto the mountain unless you pass through there and there's also high avalanche risk because it's sort of this bottleneck between two big mountains that sit above it so yeah no climber likes to hang out in there for too long and actually this particular season yeah we'd been there about a week and I remember being in base camp and I was walking down to the mess tent for breakfast in our camp and one of the Sherpas was going oh avalanche avalanche and that's pretty common in base camp you hear them throughout the night like you're literally camping on a glacier that's moving and shifting slowly over the course of the season so you get used to all these noises and avalanches but you're kind of used to the fact that they're far away and um, he seemed really freaked out about it and so I remember thinking oh like maybe something's happened and there was a giant avalanche um one of those big serac dropped in the icefall and killed we didn't know it at the time but 16 sherpas 
um, in one hit. Wow, that's huge. Huge, yeah. So it was the biggest accident in Everest's history. So my first time there. on Everest, first week being there, you know, sort of getting psyched up to get ready to climb. Did um, that change the vibe? Oh, immediately, yeah. And it's just, I remember it unfolding that morning. And like I said, I our head sherpa was on the radio and I was walking yeah. down in the mess tent and he, this is like 6.30 in the morning and I was one of the first climbers up. So I was just going to head down to our main mess tent and um, he sort of grabbed me and went, oh, avalanche, avalanche. And at first I went, oh, okay, because it was quite normal to hear avalanches. And then it started to unfold as the day went on where they said, oh, we think some climbers have been killed. And I just remember thinking, oh, God, I hope that's not true. And, you know, the number just kept rising throughout the day. Had we you... kept getting radio reports that, you know, oh, we think a couple of climbers have been killed. And then literally as the hours went by, it was three, four, five, six, seven, and it just kept going up. And then we heard all these helicopters coming in to try and, you know, evacuate people. And it just became like an emergency scene straight away. Did mm. you know any of those Sherpas that you met? Or, or even your, your Sherpa guide? Was it their they, friends, family? They were. Well, they're all related pretty much. So it hit very close to home. And yeah, they knew them. And we also were good friends with some of the teams who got hit the hardest. So I'm pretty sure Alpine Ascents got hit the hardest. They, they lost a lot of their Sherpas. And I know in even some of the documentary footage that went on, just how devastated one of their leaders was, who we sort of knew in base camp. Yeah, so I couldn't believe it. It just, it felt like a scene out of a movie because, you know, we were just living normal life in base camp and everything was going to plan and then in one hit that happened and we just didn't realise how big it was at the time because we heard Avalanche and then, yeah, the number just kept going up. Did that put in perspective for you what climbing Everest was? Yeah, big time. Because I knew that that could happen, but... Yeah, of that magnitude. Why were you willing to take that risk? You know, it's interesting. I think for me, so much of my identity at that time was tied up in what I was doing. Um, I think that's a big part of it. I definitely had something that I wanted to prove to myself. And for me, it was almost this promise to, you know, my younger self that I was going to live up to the expectations that I had. So it's obviously a very hard thing for someone outside of that, Mm. seeing the risk to understand. Were you willing to... I just accepted them when I went into it. Were you willing to die for it? If it came to that, yeah. I, I was willing to. I wasn't willing to make stupid decisions on the mountain and, you know, knowingly walk into it. But I think the very fact that you even walk into the Cumbu Icefall... As you know, you might not... You just know you You might not come out of it. That's... And we had this conversation before this mm. this podcast that it seems it seems reckless, mm-hmm. but it isn't because that's life and that's living. And it's like, why well, would you not really go for it? That's a really good perspective on it, and because it's something that I found really hard to sort of communicate to other people over the years as to why you do it. And I kind of think you either get it or you don't. But yeah, it's for me. I just I explained it to myself as if there was anything I could do while I was here with my time on Earth. For me, this is it. So if that's how I go, I'm okay with it because I don't have any regrets. I'm here yeah. doing exactly what I've always wanted to be doing. Yeah. And that experience was worth it for me. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a mate and he's going to know who he is when I tell his story, but I love you. And, and so, but he won't surf like dusk, dawn, you know, because of sharks. Mm. And, you know, the surf will be firing and pumping and he's like, oh, no, I'm not going out. It's more, more shark risk. And like, I'm like, dude, like. You know, I don't know, each to their own, but it's just like, you know, everything in life is going to have a risk. But if you, if you like, you, and it's calculated risk, mm. everything in life is calculated risk. But if you just don't do anything out of that fear, of that risk, mm. you know, like, 
I'm happily, and I've had conversations with my mum about this. It's just like, you know, I'm I'm going for it. Like it's like, yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go out there and do something stupid. Be like, oh, this rope looks like 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 it's about to break. So I'm gonna, yeah. you know, climb off the edge of this cliff. It's like no, it's like, you know. But I'm like, I'm not gonna not do something out of that fear. Absolutely, you know I mean? and that was the same for me. I would prefer to confront fear, and I think that's a part of life if you're really living and you're going to grow into the person that you could be. I think you have to confront it to some degree, particularly if it does mean something to you like it did for me. But the way I've explained it even to sort of friends of mine and that is, you know, for me, two months on Everest, I feel like I've grown more than I could in three years back home. Like it's Mm -hmm. just that environment everything's high pressure but it also brings out the best in you and it's more fulfilling for me every single day I'm getting more out of every day and it it feels like I'm actually living how do you approach fear for me I try and break it down and work through it logically as well I try and understand where it's coming from and for me I do prefer to sort of confront it and try and understand it as opposed to shy away from it or immediately go this is something I need to fear just being afraid in and of itself. I think having done Kokoda and and some of those experiences sort of gave me that on a micro level. You know, you're afraid of failing, of course. You're afraid that people are right. You're not going to be able to do this. I had gotten used to that feeling of walking into it and it sort of paying off Mm. and giving me far more than if I shied away from it. Do you know the Ben Howard lyric? We live our lives in the confines of fear. I hadn't heard that one. Think about that for a second. We live our lives mm. in the confines of fear. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like mm. we literally, everything that we do in life, allow ourselves to do or don't allow ourselves to do is all about fear. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, th- I think about that a lot, like just with everything and anything like we're going to do, like we want to do. It's just like the only, the only things I don't do or allow myself to do is just from fear. Yeah. Yep. You know what I mean? And for me, it just wasn't worth holding myself back from that experience um, because of it. So what, how did you, what happened with when, when they found that the 16 people? Well, the, the season was effectively cancelled, but not before there was a lot of political turmoil that we kind of got stuck in the middle of. Um, so obviously, you know, pretty much the season was cancelled because the Sherpa and climbing community were so affected by it. But also what it sparked was between the Sherpas and their government, it sort of exposed how little they get for what they do at that time. Um, So I think, I'm sure it was something ridiculous where when a member, you know, Sherpa dies working in the mountains, their payout was like 500 US dollars for their whole family. And usually they're the only ones working. They're the breadwinner, you know, so the family has nothing. And they're given this tiny little payout that barely pays the funeral costs. Um, So that sort of created this political spark where the Sherpas accurately realised, hey, we're the backbone of Everest. You know, the government can't, you know, have the Everest season without us. So we kind of got stuck between them and the government where it was like they had this list of demands and we're not going anywhere and we're not doing anything until those demands are met. And it was pretty clear that wasn't going to happen this year. And I think with everything, people probably didn't want to climb anyway. So we kind of got stuck in base camp for a few weeks and like 
members of the government flew into base camp. They're on oxygen just to try and have these like meetings with the Sherpas to try and smooth things down. And it was a bit concerning because people were getting quite violent. Sort of threats were being made. And yeah, so I didn't know what was going to happen. But a few uh, weeks later. Were you guys later, still waiting, thinking that you still might get an opportunity to climb? Possibly. Yeah. So there was a lot of back and forth. There was some team saying, we want to go ahead and, and we think um, it'll actually sort of help people to continue the climb. And obviously just, you know, the government wanted to run it with the finances that they earned from Everest and all that sort of thing. And the Sherpa said, we're not going anywhere. And some of them wanted to climb. But yeah, it was starting to get pretty dicey between them and their government. And uh, we just sort of went, you know what, we'll support whatever you guys want to do. But there was this sort of hope for about three weeks sort of hanging there of like, are we going to climb or are we not? And then in the end we went, yeah, let's head back down. So what was it like that day you just pulled the pin? Was it just by that, by that time were you done waiting? Were you like, all right? A bit of both. So we were done waiting and we sort of knew even if we were able to climb at this point, we're not going to have the time to acclimatize before a summit push. We would have had to have been climbing at this point. Um, and we sort of tried to keep active and, and acclimatize a little bit around the area with hikes and that, but we just knew, yeah, we're not going to get the time to be ready for a summit push. And also some of the bigger teams were pulling out. And that means a lot of your rope support, a lot, of, a lot of your Sherpa support that helps set up the mountain every year was slowly pulling out. So we just knew once they're gone, we kind of, as a small team, we're not prepared for a smaller ascent. So we pretty much have to go. You should start, start like affecting your mental state too, like your mental. It does like, because I knew spin. I'm not going to let my guard down and, and sort of mentally switch off until I'm absolutely told we're done. Yeah. Because what if you prepare to go home and they're like, oh, no, we're climbing now. <laughs> so do People, do you find with such a high-risk environment mm. that people really have each other's backs? I think they do, yeah. And I think it can be a bit challenging on Everest because it's not a team dynamic where you always know your team before you go. But I do think under pressure people do have each other's backs and our team certainly did, yeah. yeah. Were you scared? Like, okay, when, you, when the pin got pulled and then you're like, okay, I'm on my way home, mm. for you was it? Was it like, okay, that's my dream done? Because like, how am I going to get sponsors to... Yeah, I pretty much thought that. Like that, I I knew, look, if I had the opportunity to go again, I would, but I didn't see how that was going to happen. So... So was that a big burst in the bubble? Huge. But obviously with everything that happened, it's something you don't want to think about or admit because of what happened with the climbing community. But yeah, there's that underlying like... That's three years of my life. Everything I've put into this finished after a week in base camp. Like, So what happened? How did that get back? How did you get that back? So I spent a few months at home, sort of didn't know what was going to happen, but slowly just got back into training, even just for my own sort of mental state at that point. And then after a few months, just started having some of the Sherpas over there contact me and say, look, you know, it looks like the Everest season is going to go ahead. I had the expedition leader contact me and say, we're allowed to reuse our permits, which are quite high, the permit fee. That's half the problem when you want to climb Everest is just paying that. And they said, look, because you've paid it previously, if you wanted to have another attempt, you could go back over and it wouldn't cost you as much as it did last time. It'll still cost a bit. So you would have to have some sponsorship. Yeah. Yeah. And I was fortunate that I had sponsors willing to back it for a second time. So, so literally what? a year after, same time of year. So what happened the second time? So same climbing team, flew over to Kathmandu, did the whole trek into Everest base camp, psyched up again. And so, yeah, we, we got to base camp and set up for a whole new climbing season. And we'd been there for a couple of weeks. And I think it was actually the night before we were about to start climbing on the mountain. So lots of nerves knowing I'm going up into the Kumbu Icefall the next day. That's where this accident happened. So, yeah, I was mentally preparing myself to go up through there. 
And usually you start out at like two o'clock in the morning. We got up in the morning, got ready to start climbing. And like I said, we'd been there for a couple of weeks. So we were acclimatized to base camp. And this was our very first climb up to camp one. I'm so nervous and excited and all of that. Got up early and the head Sherpa of our camp said, oh, look, there's been a lot of snowfall overnight. It's made that section even more unstable. So we're going to have a rest day in base camp and we're going to try and climb the next day, depending on weather. So we kind of got pushed back a day. A few hours later at midday that day, the Nepal earthquake hit. (gasps) (laughs) Second time on Everest, second natural disaster. Um, So what happened is I was in the mess tent having lunch with the rest of the team that had just finished. And I went back to my personal tent in base camp, just my small little one person tent. Yeah, I was just sort of reading and then I felt the ground shake and it took a minute to process what it was because typically in base camp, like that's the safest place on Everest. That's yeah. usually where nothing really happens. And so you feel like you can let your guard down unless you're climbing. And so, yeah, it took a minute to sort of go, what was that? And I could hear this noise out the back of my tent and I unzipped and I looked out at it and this huge avalanche, um, that earthquake had caused all the mountains around base camp to trigger a massive avalanche and it was just tearing through base camp. And Wait, what do you mean tearing through base camp? You're watching snow I'm watching come it. at you. It's like what I imagine watching a tsunami feels like, but of snow. There's just this massive white wall. And I remember thinking with how far away those mountains are, you didn't think it was going to come and hit you, but it did. And it wasn't slowing down and it was actually picking up speed. So, so you're, are, you, are you watching this? Is- watching it come at us. And this huge avalanche was just tearing through and it wasn't slowing down. And I remember looking at it thinking... That's moving really fast. And I also can't tell how much snow is behind that. So what, um, what were people doing around you? Did they start panicking? They, they... Sort of. Well, I actually couldn't see them because I was isolated in my own tent. So I, th- I assume most people might have still been in the mess tent and then some might have also been in their personal tents. So I actually didn't know after I left after lunch and we all went back to our mm. own tents. So I was just in there and I saw this huge thing coming at us and I realized it's not slowing down. And I had about three seconds before it hit us to react to that. So straight into like reaction mode when I saw it, zipped up my tent, jumped to the other side of it. And I actually got taught this in my training in New Zealand years earlier is you have to create an air pocket with your arms so that if you get buried by an avalanche, if the impact doesn't kill you, you will have some time to try and get out. (gasps) But if you get stuck under there and you can't get yourself out, you're pretty much reliant on a team member to come and get you out. So it's just dependent on whether they can. So So I was... Really lucky. So wait, even wait, though, wait, wait, wait. Mm. wait I need a... <laughs> <laughs> Just wait. So, boom! You've heard this crack mm. because the, the ground shaking. Mm-hmm. You've heard something. You've looked out. There's a huge avalanche. There's a wall of snow. There's a tsunami of snow coming at you. Yeah. You realize it's about to hit you. I'm, like how many meters are you talking? Like are we oh, talking? Oh, it, it was moving really quick. So, so across base camp, I mean, we're talking hundreds of meters away yeah um, but it's, it's come off this mountain but literally within three seconds that so thing. you're like it's about to come so you know it's going to hit you i know it's going to hit so me you once i had not... this moment of realization because initially so, i was like surely not so straight to training so just, boom, just zipped, the tent zipped up. it up jumped to the other side of the tent created this air pocket with my arms where you cover your mouth and your nose and your face did you have an avi pack like i didn't a... no not you so don't you usually have, have an... them there uh, no. On Everest at all? Or no, just... no, you don't because there's sort of a route that's known. And yeah, or sometimes you might at one of the higher camps, but in base camp, it's usually just like this gravel moraine, not even snow. Um, and you're actually not usually near anything that could avalanche. Um, they're so far away. 
but this time that earthquake just triggered this thing. Did like three sh- mountains created one giant avalanche and that's what tore through Did base you camp. yourself? I had a moment of realisation where I just went, you just freeze. And it was like a, like a second. And then like, yeah, two seconds later that thing hit. So I had a moment of realisation. You sort of have a mini freak out while you're trying to make sure you're doing all the right things. So internally, yes, I was terrified. But I zipped this thing up, jumped to the other side and just kind of waited for it to hit. I knew it was coming. And then... So do you just have your arms above your head? Pretty much. You're just trying to protect what you can of yourself and hope that this thing just passes. And most of my tent got destroyed and buried Wait, in the snow. Wait, how big is your tent? Not that big. It's it's basically... Like a four-man dome tent kind of yes, size? Yes, yep. So you, you're sitting there and... Okay, what was it like when it first hit? Do you remember the exact little moments when you go through those? So I felt the impact of it. So there was an initial hit, um, which fortunately wasn't, you know, enough to sort of hurt me, but it did knock me over. And then I could just feel the snow getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And I thought, I'm actually getting buried here. And there was about a 30-second period where it felt a lot longer, but this thing was just smashing us. And I thought, I don't know how I'm going to get out of my tent. Yeah, and just the weight of it was starting to wear on me. So it's powdery snow. It's not, it's not an ice slide avalanche. No, yeah, so it's powdery. So, and that was hard to tell when it was coming at us. It just looked like this wall. And so I yeah. thought, I didn't know if the impact of that was going to kill us or not. It just yeah. looked that heavy. Because a lot of avalanches and like, well, it's the ice pack. It's like, it's like ice yeah. sliding down a yep. freaking, oh my yeah. God. So we were lucky to just be far enough out of the way that whilst we were still hit, no one was killed in our team. That did happen, obviously, to the, the camps that were closer to those mountains sort of toward the back of base camp, but we were closer to the entrance of Everest, and so we got hit by it. But I was very fortunate that the section of my tent I had jumped into was the only part that was still okay. So the fear is if you are buried or you can't get to the zips or you can't use a knife to cut your way out, then you're pretty much reliant on someone else. So... I got out of my tent. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Do you mind? I'm just going to... Okay, wait, wait, wait. It's too fucking intense, man. Okay, so it, it's hit you it's, and, and kind of you're feeling the weight. Wait, you know that there's snow all above you and you've got your arms over your head. Mm. And now are you... Can you still see? Is there an air pocket around you and part of the tent squashed? Yeah, I can still see a little bit in the section that I was in. Most of the tent was pretty much buried and Is it like dark? Is like light getting in at all? A little bit. Yeah. Because I had jumped to the other side. Yeah. um, And I created an air pocket in there. So there was a little bit of it, but it was mostly dark. But yeah, I was lucky that I was just like right next to the zip of the front of the tent. Did you have a knife on you? Not at the time. No. So. Okay. So as as soon as it stopped and gone quiet. It was pretty. What's your realization? All of a sudden. Are you looking going, oh my God, what do I do here? Kind of like for a second, yeah, you're just sort of trying to process what just happened because it happened so quickly and it was so intense that you're just kind of like, oh my God. But then for me, I went straight back to that sort of logic of like, okay, how do I need to react right now? And I realized other team members, I don't know where they are. I don't know if they're buried. So they've probably got, if they are, they maybe have a few minutes for us to try and dig them out. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to breathe. Um, So literally, as soon as I had that realization of like, where is everyone? Once I realized I was okay, I was like, okay, that just happened. I like unzipped my tent, jumped out. I was like, all right, where is everyone? Wait, what do you mean? Did you have to um, dig your way out? I, I, the section that I was in luckily only had a bit of snow. 
the rest yeah. of it was like totally buried. So I was able to get out. What was the scene like when you stood out and looked around? Oh, it yeah, every like all these tents were like gone. Like you couldn't, you know, and there were it had thrown stuff from people's camps like into the ice fall. Um so there were like boots of people's and bags like tables just littered throughout base camp so was it just a mess okay it was yeah and the first thing i remember seeing was a guy already being carried on a stretcher so something i think he'd cut his eye and there was a lot of blood and he was being carried through our camp and like straight away some of the bigger camps near the helipads in base camp were being set up as medical evacuation points and then, yeah, we just did whatever we could to help. But effectively, if you couldn't, you had to try and get out of base camp because of aftershocks. So it was just like, get did out you just of look around? Were you like, did, were you like looking for your team? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. So it was just like, boom, you're right, you're right, you're right. That's then... right. Yeah, we had to count everyone. So you know, there was a woman, Donna, who was a climber as well, and her tent wasn't far from mine. So she was the first person I found, and we made sure each other was okay. But she actually had some frostbite from that avalanche because she don't think she quite made it to her tent. She was still outside, but she was sort of hidden by a rock in base camp. She was able to sort of tuck behind that, but she started to get frostbite on her hands. And so we had to like get some gloves and warm them up straight away. Why? Because she got buried under it. Yeah. So she mostly was protected by a rock, but wasn't able to protect herself from all of it being so exposed. And so it was just that heavy. So she just got covered in ice and she had to try yeah. to dig her way out. Yeah. And so her hands were pretty much frozen. And so we had to put like heavy down mitts on and try and warm them up. Just because she was like literally digging yes. herself out of yeah. ice. She was buried yeah. by So it. she yeah had to use her hands, which at the time didn't have gloves, to get out of it. And so we did that straight away. And then pretty much everyone knew to sort of congregate near the mess tent and sort of like make sure everyone was okay. Was that anyone not okay? Did you have to go like dig people out? No, so everyone in our team was able to get themselves out, luckily. But yeah, that was my first thought. I was like, we don't have time if people are buried. And fortunately, they weren't. So everyone was able to sort of meet. And then it was about trying to help the wider base camp community after that. And how were they? Did anyone get hurt? There were 20 killed. (gasps) One of them, a doctor from one of the teams, from one of the US climbing teams. And yeah, so 20 climbers killed in base camp. And about... Like how far from you? Oh, meters, like, yeah, not that far. So they just, they were just a little bit further up, sort of, oh yeah, 50 to 100 meters up further from us. And that was enough for that heavy impact to hit them. And the ones that, yeah, were right further back in base camp, unfortunately, were in the impact zone. And just the weight of that snow, all of these mountains had dumped that on base camp. And so some people got buried in it. Some people were killed by the impact. Well, you guys trying to dig them out. Like when you like yep. when you looked at and like, okay, our teams are right, but you're looking yep. up where it impacted, and you're like, there was tents there before. There's people. Yeah. There. So everyone in base camp was just like scurrying to try and get everyone out. So were you just wearing as... beacons like to find it? If no, you're you don't typically wear them on Everest. Um, if you do, it's up higher because avalanches pretty much never happen. In base, in base camp. camp. Yeah. So you're no not one near anything. On, it's so, a really wide open space. So what were they just picking random areas thinking there was a tent yes. here before to start yep. digging? Yep. <sighs> yeah. Oh my so God. just based on knowing where your camp is. So if people knew roughly where their tents were, so they that, had to sort of try and... Did anyone... Was there anyone that you knew like that you'd hung out with that day or like the... Not personally, no, that had been killed. But there were a lot of injuries as well. About an extra 30 climbers were injured and that was, you know, just cuts, even from the gear and stuff, just flying in this avalanche. What was that sound? That, that would, 
Was that traumatic? It was. And it's something that more hit me when I got home because at the time you're just so focused on like, what do we need to do? Because it wasn't over at that point. There were aftershocks, there were more avalanches. There was no real safe place to stay either. So we just kind of had to sit in one of the villages on the trail to Everest Base Camp. And I didn't know if it was going to be weeks before we could get home. Um, And we were hearing reports that the airport was damaged. So we weren't sure we were going to be able to get out. Luckily, I was able to a few weeks later. But yeah, it was pretty much just became a rescue mission at that point. Trying to get everyone out. When you first stood up out of that tent Mm. and you looked around, did you know that it was going to be a horrific scene? Did you look around and go, people just died? Did you know that? I did. I don't think I knew how bad. Yeah. I just, because initially I was just so focused on, okay, where's our team? But then it does occur to you a few seconds later, we're further down. There's camps all around and up there that would have been closer to it. And then for me seeing that guy, you know, bleeding, coming past in a stretcher, that was like, okay, yeah. This, I knew then there would be casualties. So with... With 20 people, mm-hmm. is that 20, did they find them? They did, yep. So the bodies were recovered, but 20 were killed, yeah. So they all got dug out? Yep. People hand digging them out? Yep. And initially, um, a lot of people were told, look, you've got to get down to the nearest tea house, which is about a, an hour trek down from base camp, which still isn't that safe. But yeah, so unfortunately, like the bodies did get recovered by certain people, but you couldn't have everyone sitting in base camp because that just put everyone at more risk. So certain teams were allocated to do that. And then the next day, the rest of us would sort of come up and try to recover what we could. Shit. Mm. Guessing the vibes. I couldn't even imagine what it'd be like. Like, what if that was like one of your team members? And you got told you better get off the mountains, you're going to be more. Oh. Like, were you seeing people panic? Were you seeing people trying to dig people out? Or did you, did you get off before that? No, not before that. So it did continue after we left, but there was a bit of that before as well. Um, so we went and on our way sort of out, um, going down to the nearest tea house. With a lot of the other climbers, we went to some of the main camps that were now set up as medical evacuation points and just sort of said look is there anything we can help with and and they said oh look we've got it covered and I more saw people who were injured than the actual casualties but yeah I do know that they were recovered once we were on our way down when you first got out did you see people running to try and like dig out their friends yeah yeah it was just there was this like eerie silence as soon as it had hit and then yeah all that chaos of like you could see people now coming out trying to you know recover their camps and um, it's quite a distance through base camp though as well and you are at altitude so it's hard to you know get to other people and, and do that sort of thing but yeah you do you do the best you can and yeah try and help recover people was there emotions like I there were some I, could... I look for me I just went straight into logical mode of like we just need to handle this right now and you can tell like we're not safe this whole place just feels unstable but there were a few people in our team that were quite hysterical and we sort of had to try and calm them down. Don't think they were ready for something like that. And I remember, yeah, we sort of grouped together outside the mess tent and a couple of them were just like panicking. Um, and we knew like, yeah, we've got to get them down. Fuck. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is just, I'm just 
I'm trying to think of like that happened to me and someone from my team, like let's say like you and I on mm. the mountain and I got up and then you're not next to me anymore and I know you're under that snow, just the panic of just trying to, I'll just be trying to dig you out. Yeah. That you was know? my first thought after I went, okay, it's actually stopped. There's almost this moment of disbelief where you're like, is it finished? And then you realize you're okay and then you start freaking out because you're like, where is everyone else? And I hadn't seen whether they were still in the mess tent or whether they were in their tents. And I knew we we're only going to have a limited amount of time to potentially bury people out. So fortunately, everyone was okay, but they were yeah quite traumatized by it. That would have been international news. Mm-hmm. So what, what about your friends, family at home? They would have so, seen that and... and... Mm-hmm. At the time, so my family didn't, hear it initially until I said something first because I knew they're going to hear about this and I actually didn't know the magnitude of it across the country at the time Um, I just knew what had happened in base camp and I sat phone back and I remember messaging my parents and saying look you're going to hear about this just so you know I'm okay but there's you know been a massive earthquake and an avalanche over here and you'll start to hear that on the news I wanted to get to them before they heard it on the news and I did and then they were reporting back to me what they were seeing and the number was like a thousand in Nepal dead and then it was jumping to three thousand, four thousand, it got up to about ten thousand. What in the whole greater area? Yeah. Because so it actually it... came the epicenter was Kathmandu and we just got yeah, one of the we were hit by it, but we weren't actually the main area, which we didn't know at the time because we were quite isolated. And I remember thinking Kathmandu is not built for an earthquake. Like you know the buildings and just the way they stacked on top of each other and I just thought that's going to have devastated the country. Yeah, because the earthquake would have would have devastated, but then that would have set off avalanches around the whole place. Yes, oh so God. even people, you know, we really got hit bad in base camp, but I've heard a lot of people who said, yeah, I was actually on the trek to Everest base camp just as a trekker, not even a climber, when, I, when we were hit by that. And also there were some people who were actually up on the mountain, and because of that earthquake, it had cut off their way to get back down through the Kumbu Icefall. And that made that way too unstable to climb in. So they had to then get helicopter evacuated back to base camp. Which would have been, imagine waiting for the helicopter, not moving. like. And initially they had to get to so many areas. There were so many rural areas that needed helicopters that they were sort of told, look, we don't know when you're going to get one. It's not a priority right now to get international climbers down from Everest. We've got all of our local people in these rural areas needing rescues. Um, So they were not ready for an earthquake and uh, didn't have the means to handle it. And luckily they knew it's going to be pretty bad if you leave international climbers stranded up on Everest. So they came and got them down. But obviously we were told you're going to have limited resources because it's the whole country that's affected by this. Imagine like just even the frostbite risk that would be Mm-hmm. happening to those guys and that are running stuck out of them. food and and all of that so eventually you're going to run out of your stove fuel and eventually you're going to run out of food if you can't get back down and they had no way no one was going to come up and set a line through that and they had no way of getting back down so they had to get helicopter evacuated and i remember getting back to um the airport at Kathmandu and seeing all of the country's like military helicopters that they'd contributed um to the country to try and help and support and i was told look go to the embassy and uh, the Air Force will fly you home. (laughs) So um, I really didn't know before then when we were going to get to go home because we were sort of stuck on the trail to Everest Base Camp. We couldn't go up because of all the aftershocks. But then also it was a bit of a danger on the trail as well. And I'd been told that the airport was probably destroyed. Um, Luckily, we were able to get out. Yeah. How'd you get out? 
So it wasn't destroyed, unfortunately, and we were able to fly back. But yeah, there were certain areas of Kathmandu that were quite damaged. What flight did you get? Was it just a normal It literally was. So I initially thought, okay, my plan is... So when I got back to the airport, there was actually someone from the Australian embassy and they were checking off, are there any Australians? And I said, yes, I am. And they said, okay, you can go to the embassy and, and the Air Force will fly you home. They're organizing flights, but... It was funny. I don't know how he organized it. I got back to the hotel, which was fine. And my dad said to me, I've already got your flight, just a commercial flight that will leave within the next couple of days. And so that was it back home. Shit. Yeah. How was... Well, well, okay. When you said there was people climbing on the mountains, Mm. on the mountain. Yep. Is there people that were killed climbing no, on the mountain? No. So there was, it did trigger an avalanche, but not, that didn't hit anyone. It was far enough away from the camps that they were actually what in some ways. Saw it? Yeah. Imagine being up on a ridge. And they were sort of worried. They were sort of planning for, we might be stuck up here with no support. We don't know when someone's going to come and get us back down. But yeah, we were, we were worried about that because we knew some of the climbers up there and we thought, we don't know if that's triggered something up there. Fortunately, um, it triggered one avalanche that didn't hit anyone. But yeah, we were worried about that. We didn't know what had happened to them. Luckily, they were able to radio back, but a lot of equipment got destroyed. So so, so your second attempt, your first attempt, 16 people mm, died yep. from an avalanche. Mm. Your second attempt, mm. 20 people and up to 10,000 by, yeah, by an earthquake yep. die. Mm-hmm. Is this, is this making you realize more the risk? Like, what's this doing to you? Like, what? Uh, yeah, it did. And, like, I, I was really glad that I was so well prepared. I had been trained for the worst case scenario. Now, if you get the best and you get good weather and you get some, it's awesome. But I had people around me who wanted to prepare me for the things that could really go wrong so that I could actually handle that situation. So I never thought something like that would happen but I was well-trained enough to be able to handle it. Whereas I did see people in my team who, you know, even sort of I think were kind of ignorant and thought, oh, it's not going to happen to us. And then it did, and it I think it really traumatized them after that. 20 people mm. at the camp that you're at mm. passed away yep. doing what in you wanted hit. to do. Yep. And for me, it was very much a case of, you know, you're just trying to mentally switch on and handle it in the moment. And then sort of when I got home was when you start to process it and it takes months to sort of go, what just happened there? Yeah. Did that burst your bubble? Like, like did that, was that just like, it did. Well, I, I, I didn't think, I didn't think Everest was going to happen. Are you spiritual? Like, Not do you really, feel like the universe has given you a sign or anything? I didn't in that. No. And I I don't know whether that's because of the people I've been around who very much train me for those life and death scenarios and, you know, sort of train me to understand that that's part of that environment. So, you know, but being around the mountains, I think you do become a little bit spiritual. It was never something I was sort of inclined toward, but I do have that feeling when I'm in Nepal and Kathmandu and climbing these big mountains. I think it's hard not to be quite spiritual about them. So it was a really, yeah, sort of, complicated thing to sort of unpack when I got home 
I mean, it's something that I didn't really want to think too hard about Everest in the future, and I had no idea what my future was going to look like after that. So, yeah. so where do you remember the moment when you're like, where it re sparked the idea mm. when you're like, all right, I'm, I'm actually, no, I'm going to go do it? Months later, and it was coming toward the end of that year, and it was about to start a new year. And I sort of put it on the back burner, and of course, I thought one day I'd like to do it. It was sort of when the Sherpas that I'd known contacted me and there was sort of this spark from them, which I was quite surprised by because I thought, I mean, this could shut down Everest for a while. Maybe they don't want to climb, you know. So we were totally sort of at the mercy of what was going to happen. And um, we had to sort of look at, is there going to be more earthquakes and avalanches? Is it even worth trying? Um, But yeah, it was the Sherpas contacting and one of them said, we really want a positive climbing season on Everest. And we think after the last couple of years that can happen. And so that sort of sparked the idea. But, you know, I started to get back into my training and my pack walks again, more just to sort of for myself mentally after going through those things. For me, it was like a a way to reset and sort of get it out. So I was training pretty hard just for that purpose. And did did the Sherpas say, did they say that? cost is was it going to be the same again they were going to be like you've already paid yeah again i think that's a factor of it because they do charge so much for everest the government also wanted to incentivize people to come back because a lot of people were like me they'd been there for the two seasons and hadn't um, hadn't got that chance so and for a lot of people it's a lifetime dream they've spent years saving up for it some didn't return but they did say again you can reuse your permit um, because of what happens. But were you thinking, like, even though you're training and that, were you thinking, like, that could be me next time? Yeah, definitely was. After those two situations, it wasn't an easy decision to come to. I had to really weigh up, is it worth that risk? Because that's very real now. Um, I've seen it in the flesh, what it's like. Yeah, and it, these are some of the best climbers in the world and they just, wrong place, wrong time. It isn't a, yeah. It Literally, isn't a, if my campsite had been placed differently. You know, I could have been one of those 20 people easily. Yeah, it, so. is, it isn't a this won't happen to me scenario. No, anymore. and I it's certainly like didn't feel that. Very um, much could happen. Yeah, so I had to really weigh it up. And there was just something in me that didn't want to quit on that dream that I'd had for myself. I didn't necessarily know if it would be that particular year. I thought maybe I sit on it for a while. But I had the opportunity to go back and this is the third year in a row. Third so year in a three row. Three years back to back. Yeah. How did you feel reapproaching your sponsors and being like, hey, guys, I'm going to go again. Can you help me out again? Like, did you, mm-hmm. did, how did you feel with that relationship? Like, did you, were you nervous? Look, for that? some of them dropped off and I understood that and I was okay with that. And a lot of it was sort of still paid um, because I'd been there the previous season. So, yeah, it was it was sort of a, a weird thing. It was mainly mountain designs. And I was actually quite surprised that they still wanted to back it with everything that had happened. Um, but they said, yeah, it was sort of a few things that came together. It was the conversation with the Sherpas and then wanting to have a positive season on Everest. And I just had this belief that it could happen, even with everything that had gone wrong. Um, and then it was, you know, mountain designs, you know, being keen to support it. That kind of made me go, okay, maybe this could happen. Why, why do you think... What do you think in there? Was it just because you you had such a good relationship or is it them as a company? I think a bit of both. I did have a good relationship with them, but I think it's also them as a company. They, you know, at the end of the day, they're a business, but they have supported, you know, all the original expeditions that Australians had to Everest and these other mountains. And 
there definitely is an authenticity for them to their heritage. I think they, you know, just have always supported these Australians who have gone, I'm going to, I have this big dream and, and they've gone and done it and put up some of the most impressive ascents of mountains in the world. So I think they've actually kept an element of that. And even to this day, they understand that what I do is, is quite unique and they value that within the company. You know, I'm yeah. not someone who's doing this all the time, but when I do, it's such an important part of their heritage to keep in yeah. line with the first Australians that ever went to Everest. They actually backed the first Australian ascent of Everest. And I suppose to have a company to actually understand that, that the thing yeah. is mountain designs and how they and how they started i think it was those two adventurers those two aussies i think started it it was, was it? um rick white he was a rock climber yeah and an adventurer and he then had friends who were australians who were doing these big expeditions and needed specific gear and he started designing that so they that if you think about that as the basis even though it's like a, a big company that it's like you understand nature and you understand like if you're doing like a feat like everest it isn't it isn't going to go to plan and i think that's the hardest thing with like big companies to to understand yeah and that's really tricky and it's it's something that i i wouldn't do going forward i'd only partner you know with climbs with someone like mountain designs who get it because yeah i found that quite challenging with you know when you're selling an expedition i guess to a company who's not in that space at the end of the day what they want is a summit that's what you're promising um, and that's a really hard thing to do. So it's, it, you know, for me, that was a sort of hard line to toe. So it was almost, I was happy for them to drop off um, because I knew, yeah, this is actually sort of part of it. It's not yeah. unusual to take three attempts to get a big climb. It's not unusual in mountaineering for it to take years of your life. Um, these are really long drawn out things and mountain design's really good with understanding there's lessons and value in every expedition, even if it doesn't go exactly the way you want it. Um, and so that's why they were so good to work with for the third time. And they were the reason I was able to go back. Do you still work with them? I do. Yeah. To this day. So uh, yeah, I, I do a bit of work with them and on just like upgrading gear. And I actually, um, had a meeting with them a few months ago about, you know, a new gear range that we're working on and stuff like that to yeah, sort of move that space forward with yeah. expedition climbing and all of that. Okay. So the third, third time. So I had, yeah. I train really hard, physically harder than I ever had. I wanted to go back with, if there's a chance that it's going to happen, I'm ready to take it. So did a 12-week training program, and that really sort of was mental as much as physical. It helped me realign with the original purpose and sort of try and overcome what had happened the last couple of years and not be weighed down by that, as hard as that was. And so I found it really cathartic in a lot of ways, actually, to have that really intense 12 weeks of training and get my mind where it needed to be because I knew this isn't something you kind of do. If you're going to go back and have another attempt, yes, things could go wrong, but you can't go in with that mindset. Otherwise, what's going to happen is even if you get an opportunity, you won't be ready. So it's like you either do this at 100% or you decide that that's it and you walk away. Were your friends and family... Were they still supportive? Like third time in a row, were some of your friends like out of their own love and concern for you were like... Yeah, I I don't think there was a lot of support for the third one. I was pretty much on my own. My dad definitely was. He still understood why I didn't want to quit on it. And even my mum to a certain degree as well. I don't think she wanted me to go back, but, you know, she's... Yeah, she was worried, but she's, you know, got that same sort of drive toward her own goals throughout her life. And she said, look, I'd prefer you didn't, but I also understand why you feel the need to finish this off. You've dedicated so much of your life to this. And 
you know, to, to give it one more attempt. Um, you know, they sort of understood, but they were quite nervous. Shit. Mm -hmm. So what happened? So I actually ended up climbing with a new climbing team, Sherpa run and own company. So is that because the other team, they weren't, they didn't want to go after the traumatic experience. Yes. So there were a lot of that team that didn't want to return except for maybe the expedition leader, but he ended up bringing other members for a new team the next year. Did you have to find a team or that leader found the team? So usually what happens is the leader and the company organize it and then your team ends up being whoever wants to go with them. Yeah. But what I did is I'd actually climbed with this Sherpa run and owned company based in Nepal years earlier and ended up deciding to go back with them. Yeah, I just really enjoyed the one-on-one sort of style of climbing with, you know, the Sherpa partners and it's very... I liked that middle ground of it's not, you know, dodgy, but it's also not one of these high-end commercial expeditions. I really enjoyed working with them because you got a lot of guidance, but also you made your own decisions on the mountain and you had the flexibility to do that. So it was a really good team. Same thing, you know, did the trek into base camp and obviously quite nervous with the previous two seasons, but I knew I had to push that out of my head because if the climb went ahead, I had to be ready. And so I positioned myself in base camp and the climb went ahead. So we actually had really good weather. And I remember that first day climbing up through the Kumbu Icefall and huge excitement of like, I've been staring at this icefall for years. I've sat at the base of it. I lived here and yet I've never been up into it. And so now I was walking up into it and it was incredibly surreal, but yeah, quite nerve wracking as well. But scary. Was it scary? Do you reckon? The magnitude of it you don't realize it until you're in it because you can see it from a distance and it looks like all these chunks of ice, um, but it's so big and so long and you spend hours just climbing up through these crevasses. Do you reckon, I wonder if like the blessing in disguise is definitely not a blessing of Mm. what happened the two previous years, but I just mean for you, Mm. when you actually start entering that, that crevasse country, when you start entering the mountain, were you like so much more like like your um, height and so much more alert. Were you like mm-hmm. understanding the risk? Like boom, it could. One hundred percent. And I actually, it got me to a point where I felt like, in a weird way, I felt like I had this, and now it's just time to actually play it out. Yeah. Like I just, I felt like if I've come through all this and I'm still here and I still want this, it's just time to actually make it happen. Now I felt like it was there for the taking, sort of thing. I didn't feel like I could be any more prepared. Did you, okay, cro- crossing that, did it start Did it start to burn? Did it start to get hard? Did you realize did. how hard? It did. And you hit the wall often. Even day one of climbing on Everest, it's a big day of climbing. And mentally you hit the wall. And I remember, you know, feeling good getting up to camp one for the first time. But I went, oh my God, like that's, it was a huge day. And you do red line at certain points and you've just got to like focus on the next step. Um, so I hit, you know, fatigue even on day one, getting toward camp one. Did that scare you thinking that maybe you don't got this? No, because mentally I still felt good and I knew that yeah. was the key. I could be physically fatigued, but as long as you're mentally switched on and you're still in it, you'll be okay and you'll keep pushing. You- um, the one time I was really concerned of like, can I do this? Was climbing for the second rotation. So once we'd already gone to camp one, we'd come back down we were now going up for the second time and we were climbing from base camp through the ice fall, quick stop at camp one, but then we were going to camp two. So really you're pushing up most of the mountain in one day and that's about 12 hours straight of pretty tough climbing. 
Um, and it's also just the emotional toll of like knowing you've got to go up through the ice fall in pitch black and the risks of that. And I think that fatigues you quite quickly as well. But yeah, I had a moment where I was probably about four hours away from camp two. And I honestly have never felt that tired. Like it just felt like all the energy just drained from my body. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Every step was incredibly painful and it was just a mental grind and you can see camp too, but it doesn't look like it's getting any closer. So I spent about four hours in that headspace of like, I just have to fight for the next step. Did we, did you have like any mental, mental games in your head as in like thinking about what had happened the last two attempts, thinking about yeah, how I had a few of those it. things. I, I would think about God right back to Kokoda and that whole journey of getting here for me this was pretty much a lot of the stuff I'd done in my life led to this moment and I was not willing to turn away on that and then I did also think about the previous two seasons and not wanting that to be for nothing and knowing that yes that's happened but I can make the most out of that situation Um, when you say pain mm. like is that is that like your pack on your back is that your feet rubbing in your you know what mm. you don't even really notice that stuff it's actually the fatigue you just feel so drained so it's it it sort of starts out as pain but what it progresses to your body almost goes numb and it's just this mental fight that you have to try and win against yourself and your own limits and and really having to push past them so I'd never felt so fatigued to the point where even when I got to camp it was hard to eat or drink your body's just that tired What, what are you eating and drinking So up there, you typically, it's either snacks of some kind. So energy gels, really high calorie sort of things. Because a typical day on Everest, not even summit day, you're burning about 10,000 calories a day and you just can't, you don't feel like eating and you can't get that much energy in. So you're just trying to, but usually what you'll have for meals is these freeze dried meals where you'll then boil snow in a little jet boil. And then you'll pour that hot water into your meal. And that's, that's what you're going to eat on the mountain. Um, And other than that, it's just, you know, high energy snacks. They've got to keep snacking on. I found it really difficult to eat big meals because your stomach just doesn't like it at that altitude. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you just force them. How, when you're saying like it's like the most tired you've mm. ever been, so how do you wake up the next day and do it again? I like, was incredibly worried about it and I knew this is the moment that you've prepared for. You know, you, you're putting yourself to the test and you want to come through the other side of this. Well, this is where it matters now. But I remember thinking, yeah, I'm, I don't know how I'm going to get enough recovery through the night um, to, to get up and climb the next day. But you know what? I came good. It's, it's not just like you're it's sleeping. a mental thing. And no. It's not like you're sleeping in like a nice warm bed. No, you're, like you're in your tent in, and it's freezing. Minus 40 um, sleeping bag. And that's the hardest part. It's the mental game, you know, of like it, almost embracing that discomfort. And um, that's it. Just it's... understanding in that environment, you're going to be exposed and just being willing to do that and to learn about yourself in the process. I think you've got to find something in that that you gain something from. So knowing what the human body is capable of Mm. and how much discomfort it can go through and still Mm. be fine and still thrive, still, still do these things. How do you find an every day to day life when you're walking down the street and you watch someone, I don't know, like whinging about (laughs) something, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, how do you, it's a challenging thing, particularly when you first come back. I think that's the most challenging. You just, you feel like you've come back from another planet almost and you're just trying to like readjust to life back home. It is difficult, but I think over time you just gain an understanding of like they just haven't had that experience. They haven't had that depth 
um, where they've really gotten to know themselves and, you know, a lot of people in modern society haven't. Um, and I think you just get used to those different worlds yeah. almost. Yeah. We'll jump back to the man in a sec, but I just, I just want to ask you coming back to like real life mm. body recovery. Yeah. Like, did you push yourself to such a limit that your body was just like mentally, physically like, yeah, I was, I remember getting back to base camp and it's funny how once you mentally relax, I found that I realized how sick I was. Um, so I got really sick. I couldn't keep anything down. Like I was just, I'd lost all my muscle and I was just so scrawny and yeah, I lost so much weight and then I actually couldn't keep any food down over the next couple of weeks. So it was really hard to, to put that weight back on and your body just doesn't feel like it. So when you're at altitude, it is slowly shutting down. That'd be adrenal fatigue too? Yeah. Yeah, it would. That's funny. That's, yeah. I, can't, I can only, when I did the thing in Iceland in the mountains, it was like 10 days. I was mm. so sick and I was in bed for like, I went to Sweden kind of after it. I've never been so sick in my life. I just couldn't yeah. get better. My body was just so wrecked and it was just that. Yeah, and, and the only way I can relate to that is that you're, you're in such adrenal mode that you're, you're running so high for adrenaline. It's like you're saying, you're not feeling your That's, body. It's no. your mind. It's your mind's just pushing and your body on. particularly by the time you get up to the upper sections of the climb, you are totally running on adrenaline. And so when you get back to base camp, that all dumps basically yeah. and you actually feel how sick and how tired you are. And yeah. yeah, I couldn't keep any food down and it was actually hard to, uh, you know, trek out cause I was so weak. So, so that ne- next day you've, you've woken up and you're actually feeling, you're feeling better. Feeling uh, better. That. And so it was a bit of a challenge initially leaving that camp to go to the next one. But I found that when it started to get a bit more technical and quite steep and mentally what that did to switch me on, like the first part of that next morning was a bit of a fight. And I was worried, but then I came good and I, you know, I sort of got into my rhythm and, um, you know, it showed me that you can feel that level of discomfort and still keep going. And so, yeah, I remember starting to climb up a section called the Lotsy face, a really steep ice wall and camp three is actually halfway up it because it takes a couple of days to climb that one section. And because it was so steep and so technical, I had to use so much of my mental focus that I wasn't paying attention to how uncomfortable I was or how tired I was or anything like that. How steep are we talking? Not quite 90 degrees, but I'd say probably 70. So, so yeah, really yeah. steep. So you do need to so, use your crampon points. Um, you are digging into the side of it um, and you are attached by a rope and you actually have to camp attached to that rope. Um, you never come off it once you're on that. So are um, you sleeping in a tent that's anchored into an ice Yes, wall? and it's actually on a slant, so it's quite an uncomfortable campsite because that, that tent has to be dug into the side of the ice wall and anchored in, and we're camping on that. If you slip, so, mm. okay, so, okay, climbing an ice wall, mm. you've got a pickaxe in your, in your hand, I'm guessing your right hander maybe, yep. so, and you've got spikes, crampons on your feet, so yep. you're, you're stepping, you're jamming, each mm. ice, so this is physically exertion straight up because you're going crack, crack, yeah, and then pickaxe in, pulling up with that, stepping again, mm. kind of thing. What happens if you slip? Are you tied into your team? No, so you're tied into a rope that is anchored into the ice wall. So those so Sherpas you have, have yes, the Sherpas have done that, and what you have is a device called a jamar, and that basically is a second safety line, and it'll lock if you fall off. So as long as you're attached to that, it'll lock if it yeah. feels your weight and, and catch you. But what did happen, someone did die <gasps> when we were on our way up there. Not from our team, but it was a Sherpa that our team knew. 
because when you're climbing up the Lotse face, Lotse is the mountain that's connected next to Everest. So you're kind of climbing up this mountain and then traversing across to Everest. And there was a guy climbing Lotse, not Everest. And so he was at the top. He didn't see some blue ice. He tried to dig into it and he's fallen all the way down about a thousand meters of that ice wall. And so our Sherpas actually had to climb back down and recover him and evacuate him out. And that happened. We didn't see and him And here's another Sherpa. But it happened, yeah. It happened the same day. He was just climbing up the top, thought it was fine to dig into the snow and slipped on some ice um, and wasn't anchored into a rope. How's that for you? How is that for your mental state, finding that out mid, mid-climbing? That was, a, yeah, that was a bit of a shock. Um because they told us that night, because you'd pretty much stay in your tent and, and from camp three on, we're on oxygen. So you're just so focused on your own stuff. And then one of the Sherpas, you know, told us the news. And yeah, the fact that you're on this ice wall and yet someone is experienced as a Sherpa has just died. It's hard for that not to affect your mental state. But you know that if you let it, you're actually more at risk of something going wrong. So you have to be so focused on what you're doing. And for me, that was a reminder of that, like, you're not safe until you're off were the you, mountain. Were you getting scared? Fuck. You, what, what I about was those, alert. I wouldn't say I was scared. What about um, those moments? Like when something like that happens, you're halfway in an ice ball. Look, it, can you look down? Looking down or like just knowing like if you slip, just what about that? I, I remember I had this moment. It was, it was after I fell through the ice when yeah. I told you I was on that mountain and I kind of fell into a crevasse. Well, I could hear a waterfall underneath yeah. and I was like oh, shit there's a waterfall somewhere here and I took another put my crampon in again and my leg fell through yeah and I was like fuck all right back out back out mm. and I went to traverse my weight back onto my my left leg and then it fell through and I mm. fell through to my waist and I had to kind of like flatten myself out and go to the side and kind of use the pickaxe to climb back out and to take a different route up but once I got out of that I kind of dug like a little bit of a seat into the side of this mountain. I just sat there like anchored in. I was like, my whole body was shaking and I was sitting there and I'm like looking down and I'm like looking around and I'm like, there is, mm. I can't check out here. And I was so yeah. scared and I had all this fear, you know what I mean? Because I just came so close and I was like, oh mm. my God, I've got to, you know, I've got to keep going. Yeah. But you just can't get, like you're halfway up Everest. Mm. Did you realize that? It's like, it gets too much or it gets like, you know, did you ever get to the point? Because I, I got to the point, I remember saying, like, I'm sick of being so scared. Like, I'm sick of, like, you do like being of on the edge so gets, much. Yeah, you're aware of how confined you are to, like, you really have to get every step right. Um, yeah. And moments like that refine that for you. It's mentally draining. You know it what is I mean? You're calculating, draining. you're calculating, and you're like, it oh, is mentally I can't draining. Just relax. And you've got to, yeah, be willing to stay in that zone for a long period of time. Oh, fuck. Because it's just not worth switching off at all. How do you do that? <laughs> Practice um, do, years of training that. When yeah. you're getting, when you said you're getting so fatigued, and you're mm. like, like think about when you haven't slept or something's happening, you're getting so fatigued, and you're just like, fuck, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to bed. Like, mm. leave me alone. Like, just check yeah, out. Yeah, you Can... can't afford to at all. And I think what turns you back from that is the consequences of what happens if you do. Yeah, I just knew. I had to be all about this every step of the summit push. I couldn't let my mind wander somewhere else because the risks are fatal. Yeah, right. Mm. Shit. Okay. Okay. So this yeah, camp three. Yep. So we spend the night there. And you on found oxygen. out this guy's yep. past. 
What when you when you say on oxygen, mm. you ha- now do you have to carry a tank? You now have an oxygen tank weighs about four kilos. And did what the Sherpas already take that up to that camp? Yes. So in the previous rotations, so the camps are stocked before we start our summit push. Oh, and so yeah, then yeah. you have your oxygen tank and you'll carry that and you've got this mask that feeds out of your pack. How long will that oxygen tank last for? So you've got about three for a two-day period because you start quite low. You'll start because they can't stock endless amounts of oxygen. You can only be on so much. So we start on like half a litre a minute and we're told the rates that we have to be on and all that sort of thing. You, you look over that in base camp. You're given a chart. It says don't exceed this at this camp so that you don't run out of oxygen. Yeah. And if you exert yourself more, mm. now is it more of a, a game like, you know, like exerting yourself to not sweat because you don't want your moisture to freeze on you. Now it's like now is there another yeah. game of like... It sort of is because you, you don't want to expend too much oxygen. That's why you've got to be so cardio you've fit. Got it, you do, yeah, just because of how hard that environment is because you, you need to be so much fitter than you think you'll need to be because that environment will reduce it it'll strip it back from you. So I go in as fit as possible so that even when I'm that's taken from me, I'm still fit enough to handle that environment. But you're right, you've got your oxygen and if you know, you're trying to move at a decent pace, but if you exert yourself too quickly, you're just going to expend too much oxygen. So it's this balance of trying to get a rhythm and move at a decent pace, but not overdo it every step. Do you ever start training now mm. and you get to a point and it's like, it's like, like I was the other day because I can't do too much cardio right now with my knee. Well, yeah. I use that as an excuse. But when I get to this point, I'm like, I feel like bad. I'm like, fuck, I used to be I was so much fitter. Like I could do this. Is that now? Do you find it? Sort of like that. But I think what I've realized since then is you do have these moments of peaks and there's yeah. so much that has to come together. And that includes the pressure of it. Like you, you will rise to what you're doing. Yeah. It's kind of twofold though. There's a quote that I love that says, you'll sink to your level of training. So I've kind of used both where I do think you sink to your level of training. You'll revert back to what your basic habits are. So you should try and ingrain the right ones before you go. But also I do find that the magnitude of what you're doing, that pressure makes you perform on another level if you know how to use it in the right way. Um, That pressure crushes some people and it's too much to handle. And we did have people pull out on the summit push and turn back down and go back to base camp. Mm. And just decide, you know, the the risk of the high altitude wasn't worth it. And it gets very real when you're up there. Because after Camp 2, there's no rescue. You have to be able to get back to Camp 2. Because a helicopter can't get up that high. They can't fly that high. So, and is that literally like what I was saying before? As in like when you're so fatigued Mm. and so buggered, you just don't care. You're just like, I'm just, I'm done. That's a real risk. Yes. And we were in fact told... In base camp by the Sherpas, we had a team meeting and a briefing to go over everything we may need for the summit push. And they said, don't rest once you leave camp four because you will not get back up. You think you will, you go, just rest for a minute. You're not going to get back up. It's actually more tempting to stay up there and just fall asleep than it is to have to try and go through the mental grind of getting back down. And I found that. I found on the way down, you're a lot more in survival mode. And I found it's actually scarier. You're more at risk of making small, stupid choices and, and accidents than on the way up. If you have it. What if you fell asleep and just froze? It happens. Isn't there? Yeah. There's heaps of dead bodies on Everest, I didn't see heaps, but there are. There are particularly... Wait, so you saw some? Yeah. Particularly above Camp 4. Because um, they can't be rescued. They can't be rescued. It's like the fatigue you have at that altitude 
it's like if you try and bring down a grown man, they say it's like it weighs three times more than it would at sea level. You don't have the physical strength at that point to bring someone back down. So if, if it's below camp four, climbers will be brought down. But above that, up in the death zone, no one's been able to bring someone down who obviously unless they're simply injured or fatigued, like if they're still able to move and, and they're not, you know, incapacitated than yes, but up there often you can't bring someone back down. So, so you actually saw, mm-hmm. what was, do you remember what that was, was like? A, like you're just climbing along and suddenly, oh, there's. Yeah, yeah. it's, it, it almost doesn't feel real because that's the part that I was mentally prepared for as well because I'd knew. heard that at, you know, on the summit push, at least that's what you're going to see, not necessarily before. Like how um, many people? Oh, not a lot. And you climb a lot of it in the night. And I find you're so focused on all you can see is your head torch and where you're putting your next step. So... Well, you suddenly look over and there's just a... Yeah, uh, there's a couple of points where I had that. Okay, what happened? Would you mind telling me what happened? Like like when you first saw, like... Yeah, I remember first seeing... it, It is quite eerie because it doesn't actually feel real. The bodies are quite frozen. Um, and they're almost part of the mountain. Some of them have been there for decades. So I had, you know, there's some famous climbers who, who never came back down. And um, I remember seeing a couple of bodies on our summit push. And are they covered in snow or are they just ice? Covered in snow. So you can sort of see bits of the down suit that they're wearing sticking out. Usually what climbers have tried to do if they can is sort of rope them up and sort of turn them over and bury them in snow if you can't bring them back down. Um, if they're already dead and yeah for me that was just quite a shocking thing but you also don't have the luxury of sitting there thinking about it because you're also aware like I'm on borrowed time here so it's this balance of like taking a minute to realize what that is but yeah it sticks with you I I find you you think about it long after you come back down what does that do to your adrenaline oh it spikes your adrenaline for sure And, and to be honest it's a motivator to go I can't make any mistakes here. You, you sort of check yourself. Am I getting too close to that line that I can't come back from? And it's hard to know, you know, you, because you, you feel exhausted and that's actually part of it. So how do you know when you you almost have to be willing to go over that line just to be up there? Did you ever actually think like, what if you don't make it? Like, had you, or were you thinking that along there? Like, had you said goodbye or had you written letters or had you? Yeah, had I you... had. So I prepared for that before I left I had sorted out a will I and mean, I'd also written a letter for the members of my family my closest family and I'd given that to someone I trust and said here's what you need to do if I don't come back but also when I was in base camp right before I left for the summit push I did message my dad and I was just really honest with him because I did have this feeling of I just anything could happen in the next week um, just because things have gone well up until this point it's going to get a lot more dangerous going into the higher sections of the mountain and Truthfully, I didn't know if my body was going to handle that altitude. You just don't know until you're up there. Um, I felt pretty good, but I hadn't been up to 8,000 metres. So I did message him and I said, look, whatever happens over the next week, just know that I wanted to be here and this is my decision. But in order to do this, I may have to push this pretty close to that line and I just don't know what's going to happen. So How did he answer that? He was really good about it um, and I can't remember his exact message, but he sort of just said, yeah, look, I, I understand and he kind of just gave me a reminder just to be really focused on all the little things and to not let my guard down through the summer push. Shit. Mm. Okay, so so camp three was on the side 
mm-hmm. like of the ice wall. Camp four. You get that's to camp when four. You death that's the final camp, this and is... you're now at eight thousand meters, and you're in the death zone. So you've effectively got sort of eighteen to twenty-four hours up there before your body will start to shut down. <gasps> and <laughs> what? Yeah. No, so so okay, your body's right. constantly deteriorating because of the lack of oxygen. So we got there and I remember I wasn't sure we were going to get to go because we were hearing different reports about weather not being good enough and we'd heard that for a couple of days and I just had to push that out of my head and go, I'll get as far as I can. And then I got the news that we're going to leave tonight for the summit and a lot of adrenaline. Are they just finding out the red- from radios? Yes. Just so radio, radio comms go from base camp to camp two. And then Camp 2 feeds it up to wherever we're at and the, we yeah. have radios. Okay, so so when you hit that altitude, mm. you that's when you say why you're on borrowed time. Because yeah. you only have like so long until your yeah. body can handle it. Is that why do you reckon a lot of people have died as well up there in the death zone? Because yeah. they've spent too long trying to climb they've or weather's come in and they've gone stuck? Exactly those two things. And it's so easy to lose track of time up there. You, you're version of time and even distance is really distorted you think oh that's right there and it's three hours away um, it takes you that long to get through just a short section of climbing because of how fatigued you are so and yeah. also because just like and we talked about it earlier like being at high altitude how slow you yes. move and how slow everything is and how and hard you everything feel is. like you're giving maximum effort but you're literally like step step like that's as fast as you can go is that sort of tempo and I remember saying to myself, like, I, I remember the nerves of leaving Camp 4 because I remember thinking if something happens up here, the odds of rescue, like you kind of have to sort of be able to help yourself or maybe mm. get assistance from someone, but, you know, they can only do what they're capable of up here as well. Did you go through your mind that, like, if one of your teammates, something mm. happened to them, like the actual realisation you can't do anything, you have to leave them right there? Yeah, it's terrifying. And, you, you know, like, you'll do anything you can to get them down but you just know that the stats on that are not good. Like people have tried to get people down and they just can't. But how's that? So you'd never leave them. You're in a climbing team. Like imagine Santa, like one of the actual realization with you and a friend to be like, hey, we're going into it now. Shit happens. I literally can't do anything. Like I can't say, like I'm going to help what I can, but I can't because then it's in having that realization. Imagine like something happening and like, imagine that moment of actually having to leave. You're like, fuck. Just the emotion of going through that that's the reality of something happens. Yeah, that's something I never wanted to happen. And I'm glad that I didn't have to make a decision like that. You do feel better with the Sherpas around you. You feel like you've got more chance to help with them. Do you Um, reckon you could do it without them? Like as in like the mental state without having someone that's so so confident? Do you reckon like it just... I think it'd be a very different sort of thing. Yeah, I'm actually not sure. Just the mental, like I was saying, like Wim Hof... Yeah, and like, you just know they're so good in this environment. Yeah. This is what they do. They're almost built for it. Like, yeah, imagine not having that and like you trying to adapt or learn like by yourself to it that It would be pretty intense, yeah. Is yeah. there much of a view? There is, yeah, particularly on, God, on summer day, yeah, because you climb up to a section really steep and you get to a point called the balcony. And from there, you're just on this ridge line, And it's an amazing view. Like you feel like you're actually climbing up in the stars. Um but you climb on this ridge line and it's just got this massive drop on either side of Tibet and Nepal and you're literally climbing on the border. But you've just got the tiniest bit of section to climb on. But yeah, you're well above the clouds. Is it scary? Like, it is. You're heights? that high up. Like Yeah, but wouldn't a gust of wind be able to blow you off it? 
you're tied into a rope. You do have your safety line, yeah. but yes, it could. Um, there's not a lot of room. So if a serious bit of weather came in, you'd be in trouble. And weather in these mountains, it it's more, mm-hmm. I'm guessing it's more of a higher a higher chance that weather will come in and not let you summit than actually letting you summit. Yeah, like that's having right. good weather. Yeah. And so. I actually didn't think we would get the chance to summit um, with reports that we might get shut out by weather. And I thought, okay, well, I'll get as far as I can. And I actually, it wasn't until I was literally at a point called the South Summit, which is an hour away from the real summit, that I knew I was going to get there. Up until then, I was like, I don't know. Even when I left Camp 4, I thought we could get up to a certain point and get turned back around. It's We've got a long day ahead of us. And yeah, I got up to, I was so focused on what I was doing. And I just remember getting to the South Summit. And at that point, I had to change over and do something with my oxygen. And I was just so focused on that. And it was actually my Sherpa climbing partner who went, look, that's the summit. And I was like, oh, like what, three hours? He's like, no, an hour away. I was like, that's what I knew. I was like, I'm going to do it. Like, I'm actually going to get there. Okay. Yeah. What? What, when okay in that last hour mm. did that get easier or harder it got it kind of got easier because it actually yeah. dips down a little bit and also the adrenaline yeah you know like i felt like i actually could have run up there <laughs> yeah because i i had mentally prepared myself for a much longer night um yeah. and i thought you know we're in for it we're, we're going to be climbing till right through till the next day Wait. and we were so much quicker than i thought to this point was it easier or harder than what you expected it to be I would say it was easier, as in like, I was a lot stronger at that point than I would have thought. It was like really to hard. Everest. Yeah. But the... Particularly because we'd had some snowfall, and I think it was my Sherpa partner and I, we were pretty much the first ones up. Like, And so we were breaking trail, and it, it's unbelievably steep. So you just feel like you're not making any ground yeah. at all. It was really tough climbing, but I felt weirdly good. I didn't have any headaches at that point. I felt like I could move like I did down at camp one for me it felt really consistent it didn't it, you know I had a harder time that day going to camp two than I did on on the summit day you ever scared but that you have gone too far on the other side where your body's shutting down so much that you're just feeling good yeah that- kind of it's it's okay. so hard to tell sort of what it is yeah a little bit you sort of wonder am I am I losing you it? almost have yeah. to be that mentally strong that even if it's sort of going that way you can still keep focused and keep your head mm. in the game. So there is a danger where you just might find that limit. Because that's the thing with the lack of oxygen to the brain mm-hmm. is you start feeling like you're in fairyland and everything's fine. That's a like, real danger all... and it does happen um, when climbers get altitude sickness up there. And they just, uh, that's often why, you know, a lot of the time you'll have your Sherpa who's got a radio, call radio back to base camp and they'll sort of, you know, if they're told, look, I don't think they're doing that well or, or they'll sort of monitor you as well so that someone in the lower altitudes can make a call and say, yeah, we're concerned about you, you need to turn around. So you'll get that advice if they think you need to turn back. If you turn around, who goes with you? Um, so the Sherpa that you're climbing with. So as a team, we all just kind of climb as a team in the earlier stages, but when you actually go for the summit push, you get allocated a particular climbing partner. Okay, so you have a you Sherpa stick with. each. Yes. Do, do you... Do they know the mental, they would obviously be so aware of the mental state. Do they help you? Do they motivate you? Do they push you on? No, not really any of that. Um, they're great in that, like anything you need. They're like, oh, energy gel, water. Like they try and monitor your levels and where you're at. Um, but no, it's totally up to you 
to get up and motivate yourself. And if you go, look, I'm done, they go, okay, you're done. Do and they we'll do turn... it so easy compared to oh, you? So, yeah. Are you like, what I, the they, hell? they can do what takes us two days to climb. They'll do that in a few hours. Is that just because they grew up in high altitude? Yeah. So most so of them were born at almost 4,000 meters above sea level. So the amount of red blood cells they already have, they still have to acclimatize. Um, and Sherpas have, you know, died because of altitude sickness. It's really rare. But yeah, they, they just acclimatize so quickly. They could do it like it's nothing (laughs) shit yeah okay so that last hour Mm. getting to the summit what was it like knowing let's say let's let's say so you're 19 yeah this stage so this is like 11 years since that first kokoda track this is 11 years in the making yeah so you get and all this training and i felt that that whole day i i felt like everything i'd ever done literally comes down to today (laughs) and it's so hard to describe that feeling and I just, I, I just use that as adrenaline to climb. What did it feel like when you got there? I remember getting past a rock section called the Hillary Step, and that's the final obstacle. And I just, yeah, it, it felt like living a dream. You had to sort of pinch yourself. I remember taking the last few steps, and it's just, you're actually looking down on some of the highest mountains on the planet, and the clouds are well below you. Yeah, it's just, I remember seeing there's actually some prayer flags, some Nepalese prayer flags on the summit. And once you see those, you know you've made it. Yeah, it was just a really bizarre feeling. It felt like 11 years just came together, pretty much. <laughs> Fuck, how long yeah. did you get to stay up there? Like, can you, can you, are you, does your adrenaline even let you take that in? It does actually. You know what was really weird? I was so focused, adrenaline pumping. And then as soon as I stood on the summit, it was so peaceful. It's like time is standing still. Uh, It was a weirdly, like, all you can hear is just your oxygen tank humming. But then everything just kind of seemed to go calm and quiet. And I just took a minute to soak it in and just actually kind of sat there on the summit, just looking around. And then right before we had to leave, I got some photos. But you don't get long up there. I spent 20 minutes and that's quite long. Because... Because you're, the clock's ticking. Yeah. And if you've taken a certain amount of time to get up there, you're now, that cuts Less in your time. time to get down. And, um, which that would even, that would even, would have hindered so many people's summits just by something happening, getting there and getting there. Like, we don't have time because that, once you get up, you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. And people would have pushed even that. So people wouldn't have made it just because by the coming down from the summit. Yeah, that's right. That happens often. It's not unusual and it happened to a couple of climbers in other teams that were trying to summit at the same time as us. Some of them got back down to Camp 4 and died overnight in their sleep because of exhaustion and because you're technically still in the death zone. What, when you were there? Mm, Yep. So we would wake up the next morning and find out that climbers had died after they'd gotten back down. So you're not safe just because you're back at Camp 4. It, It sort of feels like that and you're like, oh, camp, I'm out of the summit day section, but it's not unusual that climbers just push it over the edge. And so how many fucking people die on Everest? It's depends year to year. T- like typical average number is 10 to 12 in an entire two month climbing season. And that's sometimes in the ice fall. That's sometimes they've had a heart attack because of the altitude. A lot of people it's in that final section. It's exhaustion. It's, because of the exhaustion, they haven't clipped a rope properly. And I found that too. Like I actually found it scarier coming down because I could tell like pretty much as soon as I started the descent, the adrenaline is gone and you're just in survival mode. 
and it's so easy to make a mistake and you you do start to be aware of how exhausted you are your body getting the shakes yeah it was just I, I felt like I had nothing left and I just had to keep my body moving that would also be another thing too because you've come down back to the camp mm-hmm. and those people like I don't I, I don't know their story but I, yeah. I would think that maybe like you kind of think you're safe you and do. that adrenal's not pushing your I think that's part of it I think they let their guard down they relax and because yeah you don't have that adrenaline going they they do die of exhaustion and I was actually we'd made it in pretty good time and I got back to camp four and um our Sherpa said keep going and I remember thinking I'm so wrecked but they were right if you sit there and stay there overnight you're at more risk so we had to push another seven hours so we actually ended up going on our summit day from camp four up to the summit back down all the way to camp two and it ended up being about an 18 hour day how come those other people's is that just because they didn't have time they had to stop didn't have time so you you wouldn't climb through the night so sometimes you've got no choice but to stay back at camp four if it took you the full day but that so even it taking you the full day the the risk of dying at camp four is still less of a risk of climbing at night down yeah because if they stopped there and then died at camp four because mm. you'd think like fuck there's such a risk and a couple yeah. of people pass away mm. then you know yeah. like i would think it'd be like fuck just try push on through the night but it's you're on a mountain <laughs> fuck yeah okay do you realize like even like i'm trying to picture this <laughs> Yeah. Like I'm trying to and picture this and it's like, hard to even communicate it. And I'm, it really. I'm in the adventure world and I cannot even fathom mm. this for the people that are home that are listening to this. It's like trying to fathom this. Mm. Do you, have you ever watched a movie that paints a good picture of even comes close to what it's like to I give someone a watched a lot of the movies. You know, it's interesting in the, the movie Everest that came out a few years ago, I haven't actually watched the full thing but the scenery of it is on point. Like it's exactly what it looks like up there, right to all the mountains around it and everything like that. So I haven't actually watched sort of all the way through, but yeah, it's, it's hard to describe the real thing. Did you go back past the dead people on the way down? Yeah. Yep. We did because you're coming down the exact same way you had to climb up. And a lot of that's on a ridge line. When you see those people, like, do you, do you feel lucky that like in a like I don't know luck. Do you feel like I don't know what the fuck? You're walking past frozen people, mm. and, and it's, I don't it's actually take, it I, does, doesn't even feel real when you see yeah. it because it's that Did, shocking. Could you see any of their eyes? No. So they'd had either been turned over and their down suit hood covered over their face for respect for them out of respect um unfortunately that's all you can really do at that altitude do you know because um, isn't there like one corner that has like a frozen guy from, uh, and he's got a name like everyone knows like that. he's on the other side of the mountain on the north side if you climb from tibet green boots i think you're referring to but they're on the south side i think it's the south side rob hall would be one of them um, and actually, when you trek to Everest Base Camp, there's a place called Memorial Hill where they've all got the memorials. So you actually trek through there before you get to base camp. So that's very real when you know I'm going up to climb Everest. I wonder how many people have died on Everest. Do you know? I might just Google this for a second. Uh, how many people have died on Everest? 
You can hear, see my phone going through the, the recorder. Oh no, I'm getting things now. How many bodies are, oh, how many bodies are on Everest? There's 200 bodies. Okay, there's, there's 200 bodies on Everest. So that would be, oh my God, there's 200 bodies on Everest. So they're ones that haven't been able to get down. Yeah, I think a lot of them would be on the north side because we certainly didn't see got anywhere close to that number. But there's, you know, sort of sections they could be hidden behind and that sort of thing. And 11 people died there last year, just the last season. Mm. Oh, my God. Okay, okay, okay. So you're coming down. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't even fathom this. Does, do you rate Okay, but it's not done. No. Like, so, like, there's no time to celebrate. That's the thing. So no. the celebration is not summiting. No. The celebration is... Base camp and you've still got to go back through the ice fall. There's nothing to say that that's not going to avalanche on your way back through. So you've done an 18-hour day mm. to get back to... to camp what? 2. Yeah, and I was... I literally collapsed in my tent, slept for 14 hours straight until one of the Sherpas came and woke me up and said, final section, we're going from Camp 2 back down to base camp. And I... It was then I could actually feel how much muscle I'd lost. And it actually, at that point, all my fitness was gone. I actually found it hard to get back down to base camp because I just had nothing left. I don't even know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> fucking insane. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I suppose, like, I can't even... You're trying to have... Like the, you know, like you've you've summited, mm. you you know you've made it, and you try, but it's not even you're only like halfway. Exactly, you know what I mean. Now the fatigue, so it's like you can't even enjoy that moment that you've. No, you literally have to take it in while you're there, and then I found as soon as I started taking steps away from it, I... my mind just switched back to yeah, don't make any mistakes. Did you put in your mind? I would think if I was going to do that, my game would be that that's the halfway point. Yes, that's, that's like how the I tick viewed point. it. Yeah, that was halfway and no celebration whatsoever until you get back to base camp. And I'd heard Mountaineers say that before, the summit is the halfway point. So I really had that attitude going into it. But I actually remember never thinking about the record, but it kind of, there was a moment literally as I started the descent where I realized and I, I was the youngest Australian to ever do this. You realise that your name was going to go down in history. Yeah. And, I, what? and I, I enjoyed that for like five seconds and then went, all right, back to, back to what you're doing. Yeah. And you can celebrate that when you get back to base camp. So what was that last crevasse section like when your body was so fatigued? And you had to climb over ice blocks and stuff. Like... It was tough and it took any level of mental reserve that I had left. And the motivation was truly just to get back to base camp. Um, and even then you get to the end of the ice fall. But base camp's so wide that we still had, once we took our crampons off and everything, at least you know you're safe, but you have to walk in all your gear for 30 minutes through base camp. And for me, that was the longest 30 minutes because I really felt fatigued. Um but so, it was pretty funny. There was a, an American tourist and I was so wrecked. And he's like, oh, did you go up there? Like, what happened? And I said, oh, yeah, I did it. And he said, like, you summited. I said, yeah, he's like, can I get a photo? And um, that was a pretty cool moment. And it was only then, once again, I was like, I did it. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Do, how long from when you left base camp to return base camp? How long was that? 
Five days. Five day, and in that five days, three of, people died. Yep. Mm-hmm. Did you feel you're, that you were lucky? Yeah, big time. Yep. Because I, I walked up, like after I sent that message to my dad and I walked up there and, and genuinely felt anything can happen in this next week. Like I may not be coming back um, and I was fully ready for that outcome as much as summoning and as much as getting back down. And I kept feeling it at different points, like leaving camp to knowing a helicopter can't fly past this point. So, you know, you feel kind of so close, but so far away. Do you feel in a way you cheated death and so you wouldn't risk it at that level again, like Everest again, because it's like, hey, how many times can I cheat this? Or would you... Oh, a little you, bit. You know, because some of the... You do some... feel like you got away with something. Like there's yeah. this actually the sense of Everest letting you yeah. leave. And I actually had this moment. I remember leaving base camp once we were actually heading back down and sort of turning and looking at the mountain and almost like thanking it. Mm. Cause I knew like if it wanted to take me out, it would have happened. Cause that's the thing. It's not up to you. Yeah. No. It's up to you with your mental state, with your, mm. with your um, endurance, all that is up to you. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that at any moment that mountain can take you. That's right. Avalanche, storm, blizzard. And the thing is like those environments are so like, they change so quick. The they weather do. changes so quick. It's not like here, oh, it's going to rain next Thursday. No, You're no in, that's right. You know, there's stuff happening up there. What yeah. What was that moment like when you got down mm. and the actual, even though the fatigue, the actual like moment of realizing I've done it, I've done everything, I've, I've, I've killed it on the youngest girl, mm. not even just for Australia, for yourself, for your own goals. everything it's it's a hard moment to even describe and I think it really happened when I got back to my tent so got back dumped my pack down got into my like personal individual tent and I just had like a while sitting there sort of like processing it um and it actually felt like this giant weight that I'd carried for years and that I'd put on myself was just lifted Um, do they know that like how sick you're going to be? Do they have things like that you like now that you have to do, like, you know, like to try get, you know, like energy back in your body or to try recover? Um, it's sort of up to you. There is yeah. a medical facility in base camp, but typically that's for climbers who need evacuation or have altitude sickness or things like that. It's kind of up to you. Yeah. And then if do- you're bad enough, you can obviously go to the hospital in Kathmandu or when you get back home. We did have a couple of team members with frostbite. One lost one of his fingers and a part of another one because it was minus 40 on summit night and we're climbing through the night. So that's not even including the wind chill. But yeah, for me in terms of like recovery, it's just literally they, you get home and you've got to try and like I spent a week not really able to do much in my hotel room. So I had about a week before I had to fly home anyway. And I ended up using it because I was that sick that I just pretty much laid in bed. Like I couldn't really do anything. Wait a second. second. (laughs) Did he lose his fingers from like his own body blood flow or from like gear or like a bit of both. So what happened is he had, a drink bottle and it was a metal one and took his gloves off for a second, tried to open this thing. And that was enough to, uh, to give him frostbite. Because of how, and I could, I could tell I was not willing to take, like I didn't touch my gloves. 
I, I managed to learn over the years how to do everything with them on, even though it's uncomfortable and it's hard to sort of clip mm. your safety lines and all that. I refused to take them off because I could just tell, even though I felt all right because of the quality of my down suit and also I was constantly moving, but I could tell as soon as I don't or as soon as I stop for too long, like I can just tell I was sort of on the brink. It was really cold. Um, yeah. yeah, so I knew I'm not taking them off at all. I've done that several times, taking your glove out and then... And hand you to do something just to yeah, press a button on and something you think it's a second and you can't and you can't get it back you, no yeah, you can't. And, and yeah once you lose body heat up there so hard to heat up again mm. so I, I made sure i was all sorted gear wise to climb that way through the night i wasn't going to eat anything because it wasn't worth the risk so for me i made sure when i left camp four i was how i was going to climb for the next 24 hours yeah do are you doing stuff like, would you like pump your shoulders to pump your yes, blood through your body? If, uh, typically you try to just keep moving, but yeah, things like that. Um, circular motions with your arms to try and shunt the blood back into your fingers. Because yeah, that's the first parts that your body's going to give up. I was particularly concerned about toes because you can't always tell, is it just cold? Am I starting to get frostbite? And you don't want to turn back too soon, but you also don't want to push it to a point where... You, you can't, you know, check. You can't, you know, take your boots off. And so you just got to... And hope. also feet are one of those things like you lose feeling and you don't really know there's something right. wrong. Like just... Yeah, they're the first part for me that goes numb in yeah. those environments. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't, Man, I was thinking about this on the way here because my scarper boots, like I went a size up, but they were still... I think they too... I don't know. I think they were cutting my circulation. I don't know, like my climbing boots is just like, I was having problem with my feet in them in Iceland, like just like getting that blood flow back after I was wearing yeah. them. So I'm not too sure. So that week of when you got back, so you still had to climb from base camp down? Um, so it's about a three-day hike out, just trekking on trail so you don't have to climb. And then, yeah, so it's a three-day trek through the Sherpa villages back to um, the airport. How long did it take to get your energy or did you just go the next day? I uh, just went the next day. Yep. And then it was like, that was like your last. That was it. Yep. And once you've done three that, days. it is. Yep. And then back to the I hotel was totally room. totally wrecked. In Kathmandu. Yep. All right. So, so then a week. Were you still sick when you got back to Australia? I was pretty sick. Yeah. So I spent about a week. I'd sort of come good, but, you know, pretty much struggled to keep any food down. Uh, my body was just rejecting everything um, and was just trying to recover. So, yeah, fluids mostly and then trying to eat, but usually didn't, wasn't able to. So you proper put, what, what happened when you landed back in Australia? Um, you know, just for me, it was a, a lot of media at the airport and family picked me up and, and that was it. One Big question I have getting back to Australia and then you've done this life goal that like you planned like your whole life for kind of thing. And I, it, it's funny because I've talked to people that have done world records. It's like they've been going for this world record their whole life. And then after it, it's like they have this downward slope because they're like, mm -hmm. oh, what next? They, everything that their whole life, you know, like their whole, everything that they were working on, everything that they were working towards was this one, for one life goal. And then, then mm. once they ticked it, it was suddenly like this void. Yeah. They're like, oh, what's next? Like, did you have anything? Like, what was that like? Something you'd worked, it was like this dream for yeah, 11 I, years. Yeah, I definitely then... had that. And it's, I think it's unavoidable. I think it's something you have to work through. And it's partially accepting that that was sort of that part of your life and not every experience is going to be that intense. Um, but there definitely is 
it's it's so hard to find a purpose after that and I think um you've just got to be okay with having other experiences and it it takes time to work through it for sure but yeah it's hard to set anything that's going to compare to that would you say you had a hard time with that definitely did and for a few years it, it wasn't a quick thing it would sort of it was up and down you know you'd have times where you sort of feel good and you actually like are glad it's done and you're back home and you don't have that pressure but then there's times where you'd sort of fall into this pit of like how do I find something that gets me up every morning that you know just isn't the same as that yeah Yeah. holy shit what how does it feel to be the youngest Australian to climb Everest it's um like do you feel like that that's a feat like do you you know, like, is that, I know, I know you must be so proud mm, of that. Like that's yeah. it's ridiculous. <laughs> Fuck, we just heard the story, but it's like, how does that feel to be that person? It's pretty, yeah, it is surreal. Um, and it's sort of something that you, you sort of remember every so often. Um, I think after it, it was this huge thing that I was proud of. And then you do sort of have to redefine yourself in order to move forward and not sort of hang on to it too much, but you still have those moments where you sort of like, Oh yeah, you know, I'm, I am the youngest Australian to ever do that. Mm. So yeah, it's kind of comes and goes in waves of like this pinch me moment, even to this day where it's hard to believe you've done it. Yeah. Do you have anything else planned? Not at the moment. No, for me, this sort of stage of my life before I set another goal, I wanted to really sort of be comfortable without that almost before I set the next thing. Yeah, just to get mm. that drive. Do you do you still feel you have that me- mental strength to be able to like go ahead and push on? I do, like... but I also think there's so many factors that have to come together. Like yeah. I felt that it was so authentic and genuine that purpose that I had. Yeah, that I almost feel like it, you probably couldn't recreate that now. It would have to be a new goal that yeah. I'm aligned with and something that will really give you that drive. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Alyssa, so y- your book is the girl that climbed Everest. Mm-hmm. And that's been out for a few years now? Yeah, it came out the same year I climbed Everest in 2016. Okay, and that's still available? Yeah, still available. So you can get it online, Amazon, Booktopia, and then certain stores sell it. Ah, oh, wicked. Hey, all right, you've, you've got to go. We've been talking, <laughs> this has been such an amazing podcast. It's been three hours now. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming coming and meeting me in, in Brisbane, actually, up in here. Yeah. And, and um, Wow, that's it's. I don't even actually know what to say. <laughs> Ridiculous! You're amazing. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Yeah, but thanks for doing that. Thanks for just killing it. <laughs> All right, let's get out of here. Just say. I hope you guys like this episode. Now, remember, I've got prizes to give away for whoever shares it for me. Go on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe, put it on your social media story, tell your mum. Send me a message, send me a screenshot, or I'm just going to see it on Apple Podcasts anyway, or I'm going to see it on social media, and every week I'm going to pick someone and I'm going to send them an Opinal Knife or a Diaries of the Wild Ones t-shirt. Enjoy, guys, and thanks for listening.
Yeah, do it like a double.